0: everybody, this is James Lindsay and you're listening to the New Discourses podcast. And We're talking about degrowth. As a matter of fact, what we're talking about is sort of the goal of degrowth um, and the lies used to create the momentum for degrowth and what's really going on with the whole agenda behind degrowth, World Economic Forum, United Nations, the whole thing, which means what we're actually going to talk about is sort of the birth of the uh, well-being economy, which is not exactly <laughs> based on well-being, as you've heard in some of the other episodes that I've done, uh, talking either about degrowth communism or sustainability as as a form of tyranny or ESG. Um, this is really, or the, the British Absolute Zero Program, this is really a disaster in the making, uh, maybe of unprecedented scale. So what this is really about, you hear the words degrowth and what you need to Here is um, starving to death while you freeze in the dark or starving while you freeze to death in the dark, depending on how you like it. So all of my friends in those northern states that are all in on this crap, like Minnesota, all of my Canadian girls and I guess Canadian guys out there, this is dedicated to you because you're going to starve while you freeze to death in the dark under degrowth policy unless we're able to stop this. And to make the point, I'm actually, this is going to take a little bit of time. I want to go through the majority of chapter seven. I'm not going to do quite all of it. Chapter seven of uh, Kohei Saito's new book, relatively new, a few years old, called Marx and the Anthropocene Toward a Theory of Degrowth Communism. And I want to talk about chapter seven because this is, I mean, there's a lot in the book. There are a lot of things that I could take time to discuss. There's some very kind of interesting stuff. From a technical Marxist perspective, if you wanted to demystify Marxism and understand it a little bit better, kind of earlier in the book, really in the third chapter, the introduction maybe as a giveaway, but I didn't really like click in how in the world they can possibly think this is a good idea until I read chapter seven, which is the last substantive chapter in the book, which is titled The Abundance of Wealth in Degrowth Communism. Now, there's an asterisk after that, which goes down to a footnote saying that it's drawing from this other source pretty heavily, but I think the asterisk is funny to look at just in and of itself because it's the truth is that this is a lie. The Abundance of Wealth and decrowth Communism is the title. This is clearly a lie. And unfortunately, to kind of unpack this, I have to kind of go through a lot of the chapter. Um, it's in five sections, an introduction, and then four Main parts. I'm not going to break this into multiple podcasts. I'm just going to try to do it in one. Um, but what we're talking about here is the is is them redefining the words abundance and wealth, and as it turns out, also scarcity, in order to be able to trick people into thinking that degrowth leads to an abundance of wealth. The abundance of wealth and degrowth communism sounds ridiculous because it is. And uh, I want that to decode that, and in the process of exposing for you what Saito's up to here in this book, what degrowth communism is really all about. And we're, there's no reason to call it degrowth anymore as degrowth; it's degrowth communism. We all just have to get on board with this. I get that the movement may have been older than communist influence on it, and it may be more Malthusian in its origins, Club of Rome stuff. But that doesn't particularly matter. Degrowth communism is really what's going on. And it's really uh, the movement. I mean, when you boil it down, this is what Klaus Schwab's talking about at the World Economic Forum. You remember like a few months ago where Klaus put out that video where he was doing an interview and he said that we are going to move away from an economy of production and consumption and told economy of caring and sharing. That's degrowth communism. We're going to reduce the amount of production and consumption that we have, and we're going to focus more on other aspects of life and well being, like caring and sharing. Then I'm not joking. That is, you'll see this once I pull this curtain back for you. You're going to see this freaking word everywhere. You're going to see it all over education. You're going to see it all over uh, corporate documents. You're going to see it everywhere. There's a lot of synonyms, but that phrase is well being in the well being economy. Um, so, this is where you'll own nothing and you'll be happy comes from from that famous World Economic Forum video from 2016. They kind of tried to hide much too late and couldn't. You'll own nothing, that's degrowth, and you'll be happy because there's an abundance of wealth in degrowth communism. And that's really what this is about. When they say in the video that Western values will have been pushed past their breaking points and the United States will no longer be a global superpower. This is what they're talking about. They're going to use degrowth vigorously on the West to destroy Western values and to install degrowth communist values, which are, at the end of the day, communist. So this is the economy of caring and sharing toward well-being, human flourishing, blah, 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 whatever other synonyms or or euphemisms they want to use. But, But what it is is a you will own nothing and be happy economy. And that actually gets explained here, what that means through Marx's concept of individual wealth uh, which we're going to be able to tie to something else. It's probably not coincidentally not only happening on the left, but is also happening on the so called reactionary right, which, in my opinion, is just another outpost of the left. In fact, it's the left's right hand. is the way that I think of the reactionary right. That'd be your fascists, your integralists, your neo fascists, your neo integralists. Your Christian nationalists and all that—they're not conservatives. They're the right hand of the left. Um, that's what Hitler was. He was the right hand of the left. Uh, it's still progressive. It's still socialist, but it's not international socialist. It's national socialist now. Completely different, obviously. Even though in Chapter Three of Mein Kampf, Hitler talks about having adopted the Marxist methods and used them to his own to drive home his own firm convictions, that doesn't really matter Uh, because it's obviously different, right? No, it's not different. Fascism, reactionary, right-wing stuff is the right hand of the left, where the left is characterized by what we might call sociological Gnosticism or social Gnosticism or even romantic idealism. There's lots of different ways to put it, uh, and I haven't really narrowed it down. I think social or sociological Gnosticism is what I'm going to end up with uh, because it is the cult or religion of the West that people haven't been following. So let me just remind you, let's get into this before I start reading, remind you of what degrowth means. It's reducing consumption, production and consumption to move into a well-being economy based on caring and sharing, where, of course, Klaus will determine in the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and the WHO and the Council for Foreign Relations and all of the Atlantic Council and all these corrupt organizations will determine what we're supposed to care about and who we're supposed to share with. But what degrowth means is specifically degrowing according to gross domestic product, GDP. You should not be producing and having an economy based on production and consumption And instead, you're going to degrow that, and in so doing, you should increase the so-called well-being economy instead. And what this is is a communist scam and a death cult. And it's very important that we realize this. It's very important that we understand it, not just to say no to it, but so that we can explain why it's a communist death cult. Now, they're doing us a lot of favors right now with this whole thing that's broken out in Israel um, and with with Hamas because what we're seeing is that a lot of the degrowth death cult people are on the side of Hamas, which is kind of very obviously a death cult and it's sort of unmasking them a little bit more. That's not really a surprise. Uh, I mean, for example, Greta Thunberg is out marching with pro-Hamas supporters. She's sitting around with the octopus uh, plushy thing with her, which is supposed to be an anti-Semitic symbol and represent that. Um, she's you know, marching not just for end oil or end fossil fuels, but literally anti-capitalism, very explicitly exposing herself as a communist. We all know she is, and that the communist solidarity is with this mass murder, genocide, literally a contemporary Nazi movement. Um, but I digress. What degrowth means is degrowing according to production and consumption, aka GDP, is one measurement of that, and increasing in other dimensions of life, increasing wealth and abundance, allegedly, as a consequence of that in the so-called well-being economy, which is the goal to move into, which will be, of course, measured and monitored through something like social credit and uh, social determinants of health. And the WHO, I'm sure, will have a major, major role to play in figuring out how much well being there is in the world. So, we all have to pay attention to the World Health Organization and give away all of our sovereignty to it. Um, what degrowth means, like I already alluded to, literally is freezing to death in the dark and a total collapse of the infrastructure that we depend upon to live fruitful and prosperous lives with really almost any people on the planet, but specifically with this many people on the planet. It, presupposes, as Herbert Marcuse put it in One Dimensional Man in the ninth chapter, a reduction in the world population. I mean, I wish that that sounds really conspiracy theory stuff, but it's right there in chapter nine of The uh, One Dimensional Man. And you can't avoid that fact. That was written in 1964. It was very influential on left-wing thought. It's good reasons to believe it was influential on, on um, and Klaus Schwab. Specifically, uh, so don't think for a second they don't know exactly what they're doing here. They know exactly what degrowth is. They know exactly what its consequences will be. They exact they know exactly why it needs to be applied in the West but not in China, uh, because they know exactly what they're doing here. Degrowth means starving while you freeze to death in the dark, and a total collapse of the infrastructure that we depend upon to live fruitful and prosperous lives. And so we should really be against it. Now. Um, Obviously, uh, just to be clear, Marxists are are going to do they're trying to force degrowth in by the usual ways. They've taken over lots of institutions, so they're gonna force it through institutions. Guess what ESG is about, guys? Those environmental, social, and governance policies are all geared toward achieving the sustainable development goals and the sustainable economy, which is a degrowth economy, by the way, and a well-being economy it will be measured in terms of the sustainable development goals in other words the sdgs sustainable development goals of united nations agenda 2030 which are facilitated by environmental social and governance esg scoring which for example demand es or sorry dei implementation in your institutions uh, are one of the ways that they're going to try to force this on us. That is, uh, the top down version, but the way that they try to get kind of the public to play along is the usual one. And that's kind of what led me to want to write to, to do this podcast in the first place, which is that they've just redefined the relevant words in play, which are wealth, abundance, and scarcity. I already mentioned that and stop and just appreciate it. I mean, gonna me tell you what, 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 how they read, how did, how they did this, but just appreciate, doesn't it just piss you off that they could, they're just going to change what the relevant words mean. And all of us are supposed to just like, oh yeah, that's good now because they changed what words like wealth, abundance and scarcity mean. And, but that's how they mystify people. And that's why when you're awake to it, it pisses you off. They mystify people into accepting their death cult by redefining all the relevant words literally to mean their opposite. So here's your spoiler alert on the vocabulary. I don't want to drag that out uh, and make you wait for it. The spoiler alert on the vocabulary is that scarcity is going to mean what capitalism produces. Scarcity is caused by capitalism withholding goods and services and land and appropriating nature and capital so that it can profit off of them. So capitalism, by definition, produces scarcity. I don't know exactly, forgot which parts I've singled out to co- to cover in this, but they actually talk in section two of this chapter, which I'm not reading, I'm skipping almost all of. He actually talks about the idea of primitive accumulation, but he talks about the idea of um, as as kind of modern society came into being. They started to cordon off land and started to say, "This land is, you know, owned by so and so. This land is owned by this person. This owns land by that person." Well, before you could go into the forest, you could hunt or gather or feed your pigs on the acorns. That's all mentioned. Uh, you could go to the river and fish or swim or gather water or whatever. But oh, but no, that's now somebody's property, and you can't go there. So they've deprived you of your means of making a living. They've expropriated. That's going to be a word that comes up a lot, and what's happened is that they will then allow you to get a job on their land that they declared as their own land, stolen land. As a matter of fact, the same line of thinking leads to that we are on stolen land, land declarations and acknowledgements. So they steal your land and then they tell you, oh, well, we built a factory on your land and you can't hunt or fish or live or whatever, build a life here, but you can work in the factory and we'll pay you so you can subsist or will drive you to the city where you have to work in terrible conditions because you can't make a living out here in the countryside anymore because we've claimed all this land as our own. That's literally the mentality. So what they're saying is that capitalism generates scarcity because scarcity is what generates profit. And all capitalism is interested in is expropriation and generating profit off of it. So capitalism by definition produces scarcity. In fact, artificial scarcity, which they're going to contrast with uh, natural scarcity, which cannot be overcome. And This, which that's this whole separate, it makes doing this podcast was hard. Going through this book was difficult to figure out what I could share with you because there's an internecine fight between different types of Marxists, the eco-socialists and the degrowth communists in particular, uh, arguing over whether or not this should be what they call a Promethean project and whether Marx was really a Promethean actor or not. In other words, will technology be able to come in and produce infinite so-called green growth where we're sustainable and inclusive or whatever, but we're using climate-sensitive policies and earth-sensitive policies, but we still can grow our economies in terms of GDP. And the the book is arguing that that's a pipe dream and the eco-socialists are completely wrong and that the growth there uh, is not uh, possible. And in fact, a correct reading of Marx, because they have to rescue their guru and have him on their side, not the other side, even though Marx said some things that are very clearly in line with the Promethean thing, like uh, setting himself up as Prometheus at times uh, in his writing, um, that the Marx is really not that, that he matured out of that by his latest years. And that's kind of visible in some of the later editions and and edits to Capital, but only barely because he was so old, he barely had time to really do the stuff he needed to do to make it clear to everybody, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, scarcity is going to mean what capitalism produces in order to make profit. Wealth and abundance get redefined in order to be a wealth and abundance of well-being. No kidding. And the conditions that give rise to it. Most importantly, a shorter working day, less work that work means not having well-being do have it's 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 like a freaking joke all the marxists it's a whole religion predicated on not wanting to work right but then they project that everyone will love to work and that's how all the work will get done is because everybody's nature will be remade to love work but you're only going to have to do work that you love and so nobody's ever working a real day in their lives but we're going to shorten the working day for sure Uh, and then that will give you more time off and you'll have very little stuff. You'll own nothing that is, but you can find real wealth, true wealth, communal wealth, common wealth that comes with being able to get together, to enjoy time together, to eat, maybe, to laugh, to love, to go on adventures, to enjoy nature, to see the pretty sunset. So you'll find wealth in wanting less and having more nature, rest, leisure, time off, beautiful sunsets, good relationships, and so on that aren't all stressed and alienated because of the effects of capitalism, allegedly. In other words, you'll own nothing, but you'll be happy without all of your material things. And all of those immaterial aspects of wealth will be in greater abundance when capitalism can't commodify them and sell them back to you anymore and expropriate them and expropriate you from them and so, or alienate you from them. And so the this is how they've redefined it. Scarcity is what capitalism produces and abundance and wealth are what you have when capitalism's not there because it's the finer things, the little things that are true wealth, not having stuff, that's commodity wealth, and commodity wealth is bourgeois wealth. It's fake wealth. It's not real wealth. In fact, it's poverty in plenty, as they say. And so, um, most of this, uh, most of this introduction. And somewhere I said read all of the introductory section. Okay, I was trying to find in my notes where to go. So. Most of this introduction kind of sets this up and, and it's tedious and I kind of apologized for reading it to you, um, but we're going to cover most of the chapter, unfortunately, so you can understand where we're going. But it's in the Paralepomena, or side notes, on, uh, to, on the concept of history, Walter Benjamin, who is one of the founders of cultural Marxism and critical Marxism, once criticized the Marxist conception of labor for its characteristic exploitation of nature. In an attempt to overcome the Promethean vision of revolution, Benjamin famously wrote, quote, Marx says that the revolutions are the locomotive of world history, but perhaps it is quite otherwise. Perhaps revolutions are an attempt by passengers on this train, namely the human race, to activate the emergency brake, end quote. And so uh, I'm reading, of course, for, again, from chapter seven of Kohe Saito's uh, Marx and the Anthropocene toward a theory of degrowth communism, in case you wondered what I'm reading and got lost there. He says, so the, so Saito says, the metaphor of the emergency break is more important than ever today. So you got to constantly invoke the poly crisis. You know, we're going to climate change crisis, according to the models that don't work, is a real catastrophe. And so we need an emergency break to save. He says, in the face of ecological disasters, environmentalism starts to demand radical systemic change, by ending limitless economic growth in order to terminate the ceaseless exploitation of humanity and the robbery of nature. That's how they characterize everything. And they say it's now hitting a crisis point because that's the narrative. Um, Of course, they always talk about this limitless, uh, this, you know, limit, what is it? Limitless economic growth within finite nature. So we're going to have a collapse anyway. And, you know, there's something to that. You can have a situation in population dynamics. I actually took a class in my PhD, which was in math, on on population dynamics and mathematical ecology, and we did a lot of these kinds of models. You can actually produce what's what's called overshoot and collapse situation uh, in population dynamics. Population dynamics tend to follow in general things that are called sigmoid curves, um, which I don't need to explain here, but they're S-shaped uh, so they they increase exponentially, and then eventually they start to decrease exponentially to a uh, carrying capacity or toward a carrying capacity that might be a constant or might follow some other function like a line upward or whatever. Um, but it is possible actually to shoot past the carrying capacity for an environment, for a population, and thus cause em- environmental degradation so severe that the carrying capacity itself drops below what it was before. And all of a sudden, you have a population collapse as a result. In other words, you become dependent upon stuff that you run out of, and then you don't have that stuff anymore. And so, everything that is built on it is built up around the dependence on that stuff, um, is going to die off or collapse. So that's possible. So just to point out that that's possible. But what they never point out here, then, when they say that we're so close to that, is that we use an incredibly tiny fraction. Already, right now, currently, not even a fraction of a fraction of a single percent or a single tenth of a percent of the total energy available to us on the planet. And the access that we have to not only use but increase the amount of energy that we have, specifically by maybe thinking that we need to and applying the energy reserves that we have currently, uh, is For all intents and purposes, it's not infinite, but it's virtually infinite compared to the amount that we're using. And so with energy, with a small list of exceptions, you can pretty much make up for any other resource lack that you can imagine. Um, One exception to that is probably lithium, which we even energy there could supply our needs for a very long time just by figuring out, for example, asteroid mining. And the reason I bring it up is a physics reason. We're not going to talk about the production of lithium and how almost all of it came from the Big Bang and there's almost none of it left, blah, blah, blah. Uh, or there's almost none of it being created now. I should say supernovas tend not to create very much of it. It's not created by nuclear reactions and stars, Da dah, dah, da. It's a whole different thing. But for the most part, uh, energy solves all these problems. That's really the point. And we're not using even a tiny fraction of the amount of energy that we have available. So these claims that they're making are, are based off of fear-mongering that has political ramifications. And like they said right here, uh, total radical systemic change. In other words, handing over the power to communists is what the climate crisis narrative is really about. So of course, we start with the climate crisis and say, we need an emergency break against it. That's how important it is. And who's going to save us? Saito tells us. Marxism has been, however, unable to adequately respond to all to this call for degrowth. So he's saying there's a demand for degrowth. That's the emergency break, but Marxism hasn't been able to do it. He said, even those eco-Marxists who are critical of productivism are reluctant to accept the idea of degrowth, which they believe is politically unattractive and ineffective. Yeah, because any normal person knows that when something starts grow, stops growing, it starts dying. Uh, they understand that degrowth means starving to death while or starving while you freeze to death in the dark, especially in places like Minnesota and Canada. They know that. It's, the, the winters are hard. And so... Yeah, people are reluctant to accept this idea. Of course, they're just going to say it's because you're selfish, and I'm going to bring up this point a lot, because one of the things that they say degrowth involves is a radical reduction in our quality of life, our standard of living, and nobody wants to give that up. So yeah, no, no shit you guys can't get off the ground. But anyway, it's politically unattractive and ineffective. In fact, I think it's almost such an obvious failure of an idea that it's being proposed seriously now. Just as a ruse to make ESG and the SDGs look way more uh, sane by comparison, even though they try to achieve the same thing, as we're going to discuss. He says, instead of being able to, eco marxists instead of being able to sell degrowth, they stick to the possibility of further sustainable growth under socialism Once the anarchy of market competition under capitalism is transcended, notice the Gnostic cult language that we're going to transcend capitalism. We're going to get past the evil Demiurge and onto a higher level of existence. The next plane up, the fifth root race might lead us there or some awful Aryan conspiracy or something, whatever the communists think that they're actually doing. And uh, once we've transcended capitalism, then maybe we can have sustainable growth under capitalism under socialism, which was always the big sell in the Soviet Union and always the big sell. It was literally the basis of the Great Leap Forward in China that killed uh, maybe 100 million people. So we're going to get the socialism. Then we'll have, you know, socialist growth. But now we're going to have sustainable socialist growth uh, after we can transcend capitalism. He says, thus, even after the idea of eco-socialism has softened the long-lasting antagonism between green and red meaning the environmental and communist movements, there remains a significant tension between eco-socialism and degrowth. The situation is changing, however. One of the most important advocates of degrowth, Sergei Latouche, in 2019, has accepted the idea of eco-socialism as a basis for degrowth, advocating the need to, quote, propose forms of politics in a way that is coherent with the objectives of the eco-socialist project for the next era. End quote. Considering the fact that degrowth is often conceived as the third path alternative to both capitalism and socialism, aka a uh, dialectical synthesis of capitalism and socialism, which is what I claim Marcuse was setting up with One Dimensional Man, what we see literally in China now, a- attempted at least there has been a remarkable shift in re- recent years among the proponents of degrowth in a clearly anti-capitalist direction. So in other words, the Marxists are, are leading the way on this. They're taking charge of this concept of degrowth. I'm going to try to convince you that as fascistic as it literally is, that's what's going on with the United Nations and the World Economic Forum as well. And this is their model. Um, So he says, this opens up a space for new dialogues with Marxists who have been critical of degrowth's ambiguity in terms of its compatibility with the market economy. It is worth investigating further whether, quote, socialism without growth and, quote, eco-socialist degrowth are compatible with Marx's own vision of post-capitalism. Based on Marx's last idea of, quote, degrowth communism, as discovered in the previous chapter, this chapter attempts to fully sublate the long-lasting antagonism between green and red and create a new space for reviving Marx's theoretical legacy in the Anthropocene. So that means he's going to try to figure out how to mix the environmental movement and the communist movement into the same synthetic whole, and that thing will be degrowth communism. And that will revive Marx's relevance to what's going on today. That's what he's saying. Since Marx was not able to elaborate on degrowth communism, it is necessary to revisit the unfinished project of capital retrospectively from the perspective of degrowth capitalism to update its contents. Sorry, degrowth communism to update its content. So he's going to say, I'm going to go do a deep and close reading on Marx's capital in all three volumes and all the edits. And I'm going to try to do that through a degrowth lens. And by doing so, Uh, We're going to arrive at a degrowth communism and say that it was really what Marx was aiming for by the end of his life. That's what this book is ultimately about. This is an attempt, he says, to go beyond capital, meaning Marx's book Capital, in order to concretize his final vision of post-capitalism. See, that's what I said. That's his real final vision. The key for such a reconstruction is the, quote, negation of the negation, Discussed in one of the most famous passages in Volume 1 of Capital. This is a passage to which Marx paid careful attention, demonstrated by the fact that he modified the passage between the second and third edition of Capital. This chapter starts with Marx's theory of, quote, primitive accumulation as the first negation of a radical transformation of human metabolic interaction with nature. That's a bunch of words that sound very complicated. So the negation of the negation is basically that you're going to negate that which is, and then you're going to negate what arises in order to arrive at a higher form of returning to the beginning. In other words, you're going to go around the snake eating its own tail one time. That's what the negation of the negation really represents. So you're going to negate capitalism with socialism, and then you're going to negate socialism and arrive at communism. That's literally kind of the the plan here. Uh, And he's going to... To to go into a pretty clear exposition of what that's about, but then this radical transformation of human metabolic interaction with nature. What the hell does metabolic mean here? So Marx and the, the kind of terminology of the day in the nineteenth century that's been all throughout this book, and it'd be hard to understand this without me clarifying this, is that, um, or that reading the book for yourself, I should say, is that. Uh, Humans consume nature, right? They use nature to make products and, and to, to live on it and so on. And that, that can constitute a met, constitutes a metabolic relationship. We're consuming, we're, we're integrating it into the broader reaches of humanity, thus taking our inorganic body as Marx had it in nature, and making it part of our organic body and vice versa and creating waste products. And that this is a kind of ecological, biological, almost ecological is the right word, um, process that um metabolizes the products of nature into something fit for human form and consumption and it's supposed to be a healthy metabolism not like a a binge drinking event or something like that and so what they want to transform is how we interact with nature is the way we would phrase that today uh how we consume and use and live upon nature and it, it, he claims that this is Marx's great last ideas. Now, I think there's a little bit of fraud going on with that. Like, if you actually read the Economic Philosophic Manuscripts, which I know this guy has, he's a Marxist. He quotes them in here. Marx is really clear that he considers nature, man's inorganic body, throughout that weirdly religious book. He's very, very clear about his thoughts about nature being, um, you know, a very central project to what communism's about. And so I don't understand why he tries to pin it down to Marx's very late life as being, that's one of his views. It's very clearly in uh, the EPM was written in 1844, uh, which is when Marx was like 25 years old. So it's very early. Capital was in, first edition was in 1867. So 23 years later. So this is, I mean, literally Marx being virtually twice as old. Uh, when he put out capital is when he put out EPMs and EPM it's already there. so I've always I thought that this whole thing's a little bit weird, but he did do I guess Marx did a real like kind of ecological and biological study, geological or whatever study uh, late in his life trying to understand these things and talked about them and this is kind of what he's referring to these notebooks that had not been published. Until very recently, people have started to pour through them, including Saito himself, and he found the secret sauce that what Marx actually said when he was laying out the the doctrines of his cult and his early writing was what he meant all along, or I don't get gas. Um, so anyway, just to unpack that language. While previous literature, he says, on primitive accumulation tends to focus on its destructive impact on human life, Marx's theory of metabolism deals with its negative effects on nature, too by fully appreciating the theoretical scope of Marx's discussion of primitive accumulation of capital, which basically means that you go and you take it, that's it. It's like, I want this land, so I conquer whoever's on it, and it's mine, that's primitive accumulation of capital. Or I see a tree, and I just decide I'm going to pick all the apples off of it, and then I can sell the apples because nobody else can get apples because they're all mine now. That's primitive accumulation. Uh, So... This is going to be brought into the understanding of how that harms not just man, but also nature. This says, By fully appreciating the theoretical scope of Marx's discussion of primitive accumulation of capital, one can more concretely envision from an ecological perspective the second negation as the reestablishment of the original unity of humans and nature on a higher scale. Tell me that's not cult religion. Like, listen to that. Listen to those words, just like, Stop and take a step back and breathe for a second. So, you're going to do this magical process. It's the snake going or that eats its own tail going around one full circle, the negation and then the negation of the negation. And when you finish that, we'll understand that it reestablishes the original unity of humans and nature on a higher scale. That's that's like a Gaia cult. I mean, so we're going to remake humans and remake the world. That's what Mark said. And this is a Gaia cult, it's pagan. Um, although it's not, I don't know, it's 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 hermetic and, and and Gnostic in its approach, but that's some that's some some pagan elements right there. Marx's theory, Saito tells us, of primitive accumulation also shows that capitalism is ultimately a social system that constantly increases scarcity rather than creating an abundance of wealth through its incessant increase of productive forces. They, of course, don't want us to remember that, you know, literally global poverty is at its lowest rates. Infant mortality is near its lowest rates. Like, we really have raised all ships. Like, it turns out the economy is not a zero-sum game and that we have generated massive amounts of wealth that has raised the standard of living virtually everywhere in the world. They don't really want us to remember that because capitalism produces scarcity. That's what we have to remember. It doesn't create an abundance of wealth. It creates an abundance of commodity wealth, which is fake wealth. Because you see, we have all this stuff and we have a high standard of living and everything's really comfortable, but we have to work for it. And work sucks because we don't want to have jobs because we're fucking communists. So we have no good quality of life. So we don't have actually an abundance. We have poverty in plenty. And at the same time, We also have scarcity because capitalism has to operate by expropriating things to itself so that it can sell them to people to make profit. This is literally their conspiracy theory mental illness that they have. This is a cult religion that operates off of this everybody else is screwing everybody else over program based on the fact that at the very bottom, besides the narcissism and whatever else, there's a really simple fact. Unsuccessful people are mad that other people are successful and don't know why they're successful, but don't want to put in the work to figure it out. Um, this is the way Jordan Peterson describes the story of Cain and Abel. Right or wrong, that the Abel with his you know burnt fat offerings, the first fat, the best animals, was pleasing the Lord, and Cain was offering some scraggly fruits that he was picking from from his his, his orchards, and God wasn't happy and wasn't rewarding or smiling down upon Cain. So Cain got pissed at God, and then he killed Abel as a result because rather than figure out his uh his, his his you know why his sacrifice sucked this is Jordan Peterson's uh interpretation of the story in Genesis 4 rather than figuring out why his sacrifice sucked and making it better and pleasing God instead he loses his shit and attacks he curses God and attacks Abel instead and then hides the fact and tries to be all proud about it uh and that's really that's real I mean whether he's right or wrong about this exegesis of Genesis, Peterson taps into something primordial and real here, talking about um, what drives this fundamental envy. So Marxists are feminists and all this. These are the sons and daughters of Cain, really, uh, marked by envy, uh, marked by resentment and unwilling to figure out how to have a have a real sacrifice where they've really done the work to figure out how to become successful they think they're too smart to have to frankly it's kind of an intellectual narcissism marx wanted to write theory all day and be praised for it rather than get a job actually doing something that betters the world which would have made his theory worth reading if he'd actually done it Uh, it humbles you it clarifies your thinking it's all the benefits are there so young people get a job Um, In order to understand this paradoxical point, did I skip something? Oh yeah, let me just remind you what the paradoxical point is. Uh, Capitalism is a social system that constantly increases scarcity rather than creating abundance of wealth through its incessant increase of productive forces. So you're more productive, but you're actually poorer as a result because it produces scarcity. He says in order to understand this paradoxical point, which he's going to come back to a lot, one needs to revisit his concept of quote wealth in the opening passage of volume one of Capital. So what, what Saito has told us so far is in order to make degrowth make sense in a Marxist way and make it sound like a great program, first we have to redefine scarcity and secondly we can make it paradoxical and secondly we have to redefine wealth the way Marx did and then it'll make sense when we understand when we use their upside down definitions for words like scarcity and wealth, well then all of a sudden their upside down world will make sense because we're interpreting it through upside down meanings. The very beginning, he says, of Marx's critique of political economy reveals the problems of the narrow conception of wealth in capitalist categories that reduce the various dimensions of reality to a simple logic of value and thus destroys the richness of society and nature. Hope got to stop again. Remember, I did that. Podcast, a bullet podcast where I talked about the Gnostic temptation and the Gnostic temptation is it's not that you're wrong. It's that we know it better than you. Like the secret cult knowledge is the next steps that they don't want you to know. Well, you just heard that. That just happened. See the problems with the narrow conception of wealth in capitalist categories. See, that's the problem is capitalists define wealth too narrowly. They only care about production, consumption, GDP. They only care about commodities. They only care about profit. They only care about those kinds of things. They only care about uh, productive forces, creating an abundance of false wealth that uses It's a too narrow conception that ignores and reduces the various dimensions of reality to a simple logic, he's saying, of value, and thus destroys what's real wealth. There's a greater wealth out there besides what capitalists think is wealth. That's the richness of society and nature. And see, capitalism prevents people from really being able to enjoy those because you have to work and you're alienated from one another, blah, blah, blah. So things like immaterial, things like love and joy and transcendence and awe and staring at a sunset and natural beauty and time off from work because you don't want a job. Those things are taken away from you by capitalism and its narrow definition of wealth. And there's a bigger, I'm wealthy even though I'm poor, kind of understanding of of wealth. And really, this is just mystification. You're confusing the meanings of scarcity and wealth in order to sell people on a program that's a pipe dream in effect, of a death cult. He says that Marx argued that this narrow capitalist conception of wealth inevitably turns out to be incompatible with the material conditions for a sustainable development of human metabolism with nature. That is your sustainable and inclusive future right there, a sustainable development of human metabolism with nature. Through this critique of the category of capitalist wealth, the Marxian understanding of, quote, abundance will be reconfigured in a non-consumerist and non-productivist way. The first time I read this chapter in the book, that's the point where I got pissed off. I'm like, ah, shit. All they're going to do is redefine scarcity, wealth, and abundance, and when we redefine those things in an upside-down, inverted way, their inverted world makes sense, and you have abundance in degrowth, even though degrowth literally means starving while you freeze to death in the dark, Um, because you won't have any food, you won't have any heat, and you won't have any energy, and you won't have any freaking lights, and it's going to be awesome, because you will own nothing, and you'll be happy. So we're going to reconfigure the meanings of scarcity and wealth and then abundance in a non-consumerist and non-productivist way. In other words, we're going to use the cult reading of Marxism to reinterpret those words in terms of the way Marxists think about everything. And when they mean their opposite as a result of Marxist analysis, then Marxism will make sense when we use those words, right? And so when other people, they say, oh no, we'll have abundance. And normal people are like, where, how? Yeah, tell me, I'm interested and what they actually mean is something different by abundance. They're going to read it's reconfigured abundance. We have an abundance of so-called well-being by the World Health Organization pumping you full of like drugs and contouring your diet and your social credit system, making sure you only do things that are healthy that promote your well-being and you have literally no freedom because it's their job to do that for you. And then think of how abundant your life will be. You'll have an abundance of everything but freedom and goods and services and commodities and energy and food and light and heat. It'll be great. This This reconceptualization, he says, and reinvention of wealth allows us to reconsider various passages related to abundance and wealth in an utterly new and more consistent manner. See, if we redefine the words, we can go back and reread the original text, and we can find all kinds of new esoteric meaning that we didn't understand before because it was hidden esoteric meaning that required us to redefine the words and play first, and then, oh, that must be what Marx meant. This includes Marx's discussion of the abundance of commonwealth, and it's there in German, and I really don't want to do this, so I'm not going to do it, in Critique of the Gotha Program, Genossenschaftlicher uh, Reichtum, if I did that right. If I didn't do that right, make fun of my German. I'm never going to do it again. I'm not going to try this. I deleted it in all my notes. Although it is elaborated in its most famous description of communism in Marx's writing writings, eco-socialists often suppress this well-known passage precisely because the passage looks Promethean. However, by correctly understanding the, quote, paradox of wealth, it is possible to interpret the passage in a non-productivist manner. Such a new interpretation ultimately solves the fundamental problem that Marx did not answer in Capital, namely how to repair the, quote, irreparable rift, and humanity's metabolic interaction with their environment in a post-capitalist society. In other words, they figured out how to redefine the word so that it'll work this time. That's actually what all that bullshit meant. Degrowth communism as a post-scarcity future without economic growth. Just soak that in. Degrowth communism as a post-scarcity future without economic growth aims to reduce the quote realm of necessity and expand the quote realm of freedom without necessarily increasing productive forces okay so let the thing that they and that somewhere in here we'll get to it they the thing that they actually talk about is uh, what they call a steady state economy the well-being economy will be a steady state economy so that's it's a, it's post scarcity and without growth right so that's it's not going to be Um, there's no more growth involved. So I have to ask, I'm just going to pose a question for you to think about because you need to think about this because you can get into this, oh yeah, circular economy, it's steady state. Everything stays basically the same. You know, we have the same number of inputs, we have the same number of outputs. Okay, so what if people have babies? What happens? In other words, what happens if the population goes up? So you have degrowth communism and you have post-scarcity and you have no economic growth and you have No increase in productive forces. So if you have an increase in population with no increase in productive forces, what do you do? What do you end up with? Well, you end up with lower standard of living is what you end up with. So your choices become every time a baby is born, everybody's standard of living gets lower because you don't have increasing productive forces and you don't have economic growth or you don't have babies or at least babies don't happen faster than the death rate, so that you end up with a steady-state population or a shrinking population. That's the only way to maintain a steady-state economy where births happen. So immediately you can see that there's a glaring problem with this little program here because people are going to have babies, and that's apparently going to have to be managed, and birth rates are going to have to be set equal to or below death rates By design, or else everybody's going to suffer a constant degradation in their standard of living. Now, I want to remind you I know it's a different podcast, so the absolute zero document talking that net zero isn't far enough for Britain that was put forth by a consortium of universities, including Cambridge and Oxford uh, and University College London, um, or whatever the hell it's called, and uh, the British government. 2018 or 19 is the UK fires document, F I R E S. There's a podcast about it. It's, it's called like the global holiday more uh, in absolute zero. You should look it up and listen to it. And one of the things they talked about was no new steel. All steel is recycled. No new concrete at all. No new cement. So this is what this post productive, no economic growth future looks like almost no flights to eventually no flights no container shipping, Every no heavy rail, only light rail, but we're going to have lots more light rail, but somehow we're going to get there with only recycled steel. Recycled steel isn't of high enough quality to do that safely, so I'm not sure how any of that's supposed to work or where that steel supposed to come from. If it's all got to be recycled, we got to take recycled steel, probably from all the old cars, but a lot of new cars don't use a lot of steel. Somehow all the steel has to be recycled to move to a completely light rail-driven system, and you can't get it if it doesn't come from... Uh, No fossil fuels, and you can't get it if it doesn't come uh, locally. Like, again, lots of new light rail, lots of new trains, lots of green energy production from solar and wind and other renewables, as they call them, but no new concrete, absolutely none, no new steel, absolutely none, no container shipping, no heavy rail. That's your post-scarcity future because... What they mean by post-scarcity here, and it's very important to remember this as they've redefined it, what they mean by post-scarcity is that capitalism doesn't own things. Things are scarce when somebody else owns them and you can't get them. That's what it, what scarcity means to them, is property rights. So it's a post-property rights future with no economic growth. And the way it's supposed to work is by reducing the realm of necessity. In other words, you need less. So that answers your question about babies, kind of, because you know they're going to reduce the population too. They're going to shrink the realm of necessity, though if there's less need, that's the realm of necessity, then you can keep going on less stuff, and then you have more freedom because we don't need as much. See, we're all working really hard to satisfy needs that aren't real. That's what Marcuse said in One Dimensional Man. We have true needs and false needs, and we're bad at distinguishing between them, and we could get into the whole discussion. I did that in the sustainability podcast and maybe a couple others. We're not going to do it again, but that's the idea. So. They have to reduce the realm of necessity, but in the process, because we won't have to work as much and we'll have more nature that's pristine, we'll have a higher realm of freedom, but the freedom will be the freedom under discipline, like Mao talked about for sure. So the first section of this um, chapter I'm not going to read, it's actually talking about primitive primitive accumulation and why it's a disaster uh, and its transition into capitalism and how destructive and dehumanizing that is, as Marx had it. Uh, in fact, they make the case, that, or Saito makes the case, following Marx, that the primitive accumulation and capitalist accumulation processes render man little more than, an, than inorganic cattle because they separate him from all the means of subsistence and force him to work to earn a living instead. I already explained that. The factory buys the land you and your tribe used to live on. They build a factory. You can't do your tribal stuff anymore. You don't have access to the river, to the forest, to the land, to the whatever. And they tell you, you can work in the factory and they pay you a pittance so you can buy a living. And so they've expropriated, uh, you and then given you the opportunity to work for them to make them a profit and so you've been separated from your means of subsistence and forced to work to earn a living after you've had your means of subsistence and your way of life stolen from you and that really is the the logic by the way I, that is the logic of uh, decolonization that's what they're trying to undo the the decolonization project comes right into this and you're going to see where it actually all heads. Because where it really heads is the goal of degrowth, which we're going to see is a distributist model, uh, as as it's outlined in this book. That's the program. That's exactly what the World Economic Forum's after. That's why "you will own nothing and be happy" is the motto. So importantly, the accumulation, the primitive, and then capitalist accumulation problem uh, represent the divorce of man from nature, which is his inorganic body, according to EPM, uh, Economic Philosophic Manuscript, and. So what needs to be done is this project of degrowth communism to bring them back into their original unity, though in a higher form, not the archaic original primitive form, but a higher form. And so the last paragraph is the only part of this section that I'm going to read. And he says, in arguing for reestablishing the original unity in the future society beyond this alienating separation from nature under capitalism, Marx was consistent with his theory of metabolism quote, the original unity can be reestablished only on the material foundation which capital creates, and by means of the revolutions which in the process of this creation the working class and the whole society undergo. End quote. In addition, his remark on the quote, negation of the negation in Volume one of Capital logically corresponds to this reconstitution of the original unity, as a process of overcoming the antagonistic separation in the metabolic exchange between humans and nature. However, to clarify what needs to be re-established in communism, it is first necessary to grasp more carefully what had to be destroyed in the formation of capitalism through the dissolution of the original unity between, between humans and nature. To put it bluntly, It is the wealth of society, and wealth is in scare quotes, the so-called wealth of society and nature that is severely impoverished under capitalism. So that's what has to be destroyed. They've captured nature, they've done illegitimate accumulation to profit for themselves, they've destroyed the wealth, the so-called the true wealth of society and nature under their new weird definition, and that therefore wealth is what has to be destroyed in order to bring back the original unity on a higher level. Saito says it may sound paradoxical to claim that capitalism destroys wealth. It is. Despite the magnificent increase in productive forces it generates. Indeed, our society is filled with an excess of commodities. So here's where they switch. There's commodity wealth versus real communist wealth. commonwealth, communal wealth, cooperative wealth. That's a whole thing. Indeed, he says, our society is filled with an excess of commodities. However, this poverty and plenty constitutes the paradox of wealth. There is no paradox of wealth. Communists just don't want to get a job and don't know why they're unsuccessful and they're mad about it. That's really all the paradox of wealth boils down to. Uh, Unfortunately for them, it's not that tricky to actually understand this. But poverty and plenty, just like Marcuse, and this guy's project turns out to be shockingly Marcusean which has been great because it sort of confirmed for me that I was sort of dead on when I said that, you know, One Dimensional Man was the basis for the sustainability movement. I mean, I nailed it because when you read Saito here, what you get is Marcuse all over again. That's what you get. But this paradox of wealth is this idea that you have a lot of stuff, but you're miserable with all your stuff. That's what Marcuse said too, because you don't have well-being and you're a slave to the machine. So you're actually suffering from this poverty in plenty. And this is really, to be honest with you, this is the main thesis of, in a a big regard, of Marcuse's One-Dimensional Man from 64. He brings it up again and again in the Essay on Liberation in 69. Classical Marxists don't really like Marcuse that much, but it's funny to see them kind of collide. And it's funny to see Saito treating this as original because Marcuse wrote this shit down 60 years ago. Um, and for basically the same reasons, uh, I'm not going to quote Marcuse here. This is going to be long enough just doing Saito. Uh, but the basic idea that he puts forth is that we're so focused on stuff that makes us happy, like having a job, earning a living, going and buying stuff that makes us content and allows us to enjoy our lives that, We're so happy doing that. We're not that we're not busy developing a critical consciousness, a two dimensional critical consciousness. He says that we are flattened out in the commodity form into a one dimensional existence where we think that we like to work and think that we like to earn the money and think that we like to buy the products. And the entire world is basically a commercial to get us to work, to earn money, to buy stuff we don't want or need in the pointless destruction of capitalism. That's not sustainable. Uh, His argument really is that socialism has the right ideology but can't produce, and that capitalism has the wrong ideology but can produce, but it's not sustainable. So it's really the same program. So in other words, what Marcuse is bitching about and really what Saito is getting at as a result is that having productive forces in the world, um, like through capitalism, allows us to live a good life that stops us from developing a radical revolutionary critical consciousness that believes a Marxist utopia is on the other side of the revolution. Whether that's for communism or liberation, it really doesn't matter. They're the same thing anyway. What this really boils down to, again, is a hatred for people. Not really rich people, you think it's rich people, but it's actually hating people who are content with their lives, especially when their lives are modest, successful, middle-class lives. They're really mad that people who kind of have a comfortable but modest life are happy with it, because those are people who are proud of what they've worked to earn and whatever. But they should be pissed off, deprived, angry revolutionaries. Those bastards should be mad that they're not—they're not the super rich people and that they have to work for the man in a job that they don't even necessarily love, doing something for somebody else and grow, building their vision instead of the, instead of their own and their their they're bosses, I should say. And so what will degrowth do? Well, the problem is that the middle class is too happy to wanna be a revolutionary. So imagine if you were to force them to starve while they freeze to death in the dark because they don't have energy, they don't have food, they don't have resources, and we have a smaller economy, a smaller pie to share among the population. What will happen? Well, degrowth will obviously destroy the middle class and demolish the poor and anybody who's more marginal, if we accept that term, I guess. As those people get ruined, they're going to get mad. What do communists do? Communists control the framing deceptively around bad things that are happening to direct the rage at the wrong target so they can gain more power. So those people are going to get pissed because degrowth is ruining, literally ruining their lives. I mean, we're talking possibly billions dead if this were to be carried out. Quality of life going right in the shitter. I'm not joking. I'm actually not joking when I say I'm not joking when I say starving and freezing to death in the dark under the sustainable and inclusive energy and food plans that they have. So those people are going to get pissed. They're going to want a revolution. And what the Marxists are going to do through their mass media and their so smart professors and narratives and so on is direct that anger onto scapegoated target groups who will be framed as the ones who cause the problems. They'll be the the factories, they're the industries that the that the cabal wants destroyed. It'll be westerners in particular, and northerners, the global north and the global west. It will be whites, males, straights, and so on, so long as the woke identity politics is still useful. And they will direct. They will say that climate change is the fault of blah blah blah, or. All of this damage that's caused, it, it's not actually degrowth that's ruining your life, it's climate change. And who caused climate change? Shell oil did. So go burn down their factory. And they have the ability to turn people basically into the laser beam onto Death Star to go destroy anything in the world that they don't want in the world. Stuff that might actually be what's making their lives good and better in the first place. And that's the way that the communist weapon works. They control the framing around things so that when bad stuff happens, they misdirect the anger, the revolutionary anger at targets that they want destroyed. But right now, all of that revolutionary anger is suppressed by the fact that people can get a job, work a job, and be happy with the life that they can build, which of course we all see sort of threatened if not falling apart around us. And so you can see that the strategic purpose of degrowth or one of the strategic purposes of degrowth is to reinvigorate the working class as a uh, revolutionary force that the masters of the universe can direct like the beam on the Death Star to destroy things that they don't like. The second section in this chapter is pretty tedious, but I think to understand what's going on, we actually have to read it. I'm going to try not to bog down too much with it because the third section is really the the meat and potatoes that I want to get to. So section two is Marx's concept of wealth in the true beginning of capital. So this is why, this is where they flip over the meaning of wealth. We've already kind of heard it, but we're going to hear more. To understand this paradox, Saito tells us, it is first necessary to adequately comprehend the Marxian category of, quote, wealth. See, you think you know what wealth means, but that's a low-level understanding, come with us we have a socialist gnostic understanding of wealth that will blow your mind that's what they don't want you to know did you know there's more wealth than commodity wealth they don't want you to know that they only want you to know the commodity wealth they only want you to buy that they want you to be one dimensional man who's not critical of the commodity form they want you to buy their products and never question that there might be more to life that's what they want come with us see that's a gnostic temptation here this is a gnostic cult it's a death cult here, he says, the beginning of capital, volume one, functions as a useful reference point. What we're going to do is a lot of close reading, by the way. Although written in a logical manner that starts with the analysis of the commodity, the description at the beginning of capital pre, uh, sorry presupposes the historical process of primitive accumulation of capital. With this historical presupposition in mind, one notices that the opening passage already hints at the fundamental contradiction of capitalism created by the historical chasm in the metabolic exchange between humans and nature. Marx begins his discussion of the commodity by writing, "...the wealth of societies in which the capitalist mode of production prevails appears as an immense collection of commodities." The individual commodity appears as its elementary form. Our investigation therefore begins with the analysis of the commodity. Capital, Volume 1, 125. So it is certainly true, Saito tells us. The capital starts with the analysis of the commodity, but John Holloway demands, as if you can't read this for yourself, John Holloway demands that we pay attention to its true beginning, the subject of the first sentence, which is not the commodity, but the wealth reichtum of societies. The verb is also important. The wealth of society appears. As an immense collection of commodities in capitalism, the verb appear implies that wealth and commodities are, in other words, being not actually identical. He doesn't say that the wealth of societies is an immense collection of commodities. He says it appears to be an immense collection of commodities. So uh, wealth and commodities are not the same thing. In other words, there's more to wealth than commodities. And then Saito continues, and in fact, the majority of wealth in non-capitalist societies does not appear as commodities as long as non-capitalist wealth is produced, distributed, and consumed without the mediation of market exchange. Only under certain social relations, namely capitalist ones, does wealth of societies appear as a commodity, where in Marxian terminology, the product of labor receives a commodity form. See, it's not that hard to understand Marx. Distinguishing being and appearing, Marx proceeded in a manner that is true to his own method of uh, analytical dualism of stuff and form, which was sense and, and, and essence, really, or form. Sense and essence, or um, the sense of the thing versus the, the form of the thing from the very beginning of capital. According to this view, wealth is the material aspect of of the product of labor while commodity appears as its economic form determination. (sighs) So wealth is actually what you get out of labor, but commodity is it's like reduction down into an economic form. So the non-identity, this is Saito again, between wealth and commodity contains a fundamental tension, although they appear identical in capitalism. Karl Polanyi, I always do that, Polanyi, Carl Polanyi, though there's a Y in it because of, I think he's Hungarian, <clears throat> Polanyi, P-O-L-A-N-Y-I, if you're looking him up, from 1994, Carl Polanyi once warned that land, labor, and money are fictitious commodities that must not be completely commodified and subjected to the dictates of the market, otherwise says Polanyi. Social reproduction will be seriously threatened because they do not properly function under the logic of commodity exchange. These three categories can be considered typical forms of wealth that are incompatible with full commodification under capitalism. Yet Marx's concept of wealth is even broader than Polanyi's and includes other kinds of products of labor. Uh Aha, so wealth is bigger even. So here's a bigger form of wealth, and then there's an even bigger form of wealth than that. His intention might be difficult to grasp at first because the contemporary image of wealth is often reduced to its capitalist form, so that being wealthy, reich, rich, usually signify, I don't know how the Germans say rich, R-E-I-C-H, reich, looks like reich to me, usually signifies having a lot of money in real estate. However, wealth does not have to be understood this way. As Holloway argues, the German term Reichtum can be translated to mean richness because reich means rich. Of course, being rich can mean the possessions of a large sum of monetary wealth, yet it also has broader connotations, such as richness and taste and smell and experience of life and nature. Think of all of the r- things you could taste and smell in a degrown economy. Mmm... Remember that the circular economy consumes its own waste products. Think of all the things you could taste and smell. It'd be such a rich taste and smell experience of life and nature. Thus, its noun, reichdom, can be understood as a broader category of richness than monetary wealth once it is possible to remove the capitalist constraint imposed upon it. So he's claiming that Marx meant that wealth means something way more than just how much money and land you have. And then he says, "This is not an arbitrary claim." Marx wrote in the Gundrissa, that means it's his uh, notebooks about when he was writing Capital. It's like 900 awful pages. Marx wrote in the Gundrissa about the vast possibilities of non-capitalist wealth, saying, "Quote: This is a long quote. In fact, however, when the limited bourgeois form is stripped away, what is wealth other than the universality of individual needs, capacities, pleasures, productive forces, etc." Created through universal exchange, the full development of human mastery over the forces of nature, those, so, those of so-called nature as well as of humanity's own nature, the absolute working out of his creative potentialities with no presupposition other than the previous historical, dev- historic development, which makes this totality of development, i.e. the development of all human powers as such, the end in itself." not as measured on a predetermined yardstick. In bourgeois economics, and in the epoch of production to which it corresponds, this complete working out of the human content appears as a complete emptying out, this universal objectification as total alienation, and the tearing down of all limited one-sided aims as sacrifice of the human end in itself to an entirely external end, Grundrisse 488. Marx considered the richness of culture, this is Saito, skills, free time, and knowledge as wealth in societies. In other words, the wealth or richness of societies cannot be measured by an ever greater quantity of commodities produced and their monetary expressions, but rather by the full and constant development and realization of the potential potentialities of human beings. See, it's not just what you could put a price tag on, there's well-being. So this is the shift from the GDP economy, the production and consumption economy to the well-being economy, we can take all these immaterial forms of wealth and try to become rich in them while we become poor as shit in you know, commodities and basic needs. Uh, they pretend that basic needs aren't going to get wrapped up in this, but I don't think they understand how things actually work. Uh, com- communism doesn't know how, as we say. The full and all-round development of human capacities and creative potentialities is, however, heavily constrained under capitalism because they are always measured on a predetermined yardstick, namely how much use they can be for profit-making. Capitalist production sacrifices social wealth under total alienation and the complete emptying out of human activities by imposing an entirely external end upon producers solely for the sake of capital valorization. Marx problematized this tendency of capital as the impoverishment of social wealth under the accumulation of an immense collection of commodities. Against this tendency, he maintained that the full realization of human creative potentialities requires stripping away from the bourgeois form of wealth as commodity. Now, what I'm actually thinking of when I read this, believe it or not, is not what you probably think I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of those accounts on Twitter that show beautiful old architecture from europe or middle east or whatever and say why don't we build this kind of stuff anymore oh yeah it's a very these are very romantic accounts remember that marxism is ultimately a romantic philosophy as well so see we used to have so much more wealth our society used to dedicate to creating beauty of course they fail to see the immense beauty in something like uh an urban skyline which by the way is beautiful it, it really is. It is a much more monumental work in fact than a cathedral though I do appreciate I was just in the Houses of Parliament in in Westminster and London and uh, frankly, it's gorgeous. it's unbelievable. the artwork, the detail, the painstaking detail of the art is it's gorgeous. I would love to see more of that. but it they they want you to think that like money doesn't motivate this. Well, the reason most of our architecture, doesn't go that way is because it's really not economical. The question is, can economics could determine this. Like You could build a really beautiful place if you thought people would pay a premium to get in there. I think of, for example, where I live here, we have the Tennessee Theater in Knoxville. Tennessee Theater is insanely gorgeous inside. Do you think that they built the Tennessee Theater to be insanely gorgeous inside? Which, by the way, it's a little hint that we do still build really beautiful things, P.S. whining bastards uh, that are looking, are doing your propaganda, your romantic propaganda. Um, do you think that they built it just to make it pretty? No. They built it because they know people will come the the performers will want to do shows there and the people will want to pay premium ticket prices to come to a show there because it's an awesome environment. So it does turn out that the money form does drive the capacity to create really beautiful works of art and culture and experience and all of these things that are these so-called immaterial riches. And the finance has become a mediator to that. But in most everyday normal existence stuff, you don't. And most everyday, normal, peasanty existence stuff, 500 years ago, didn't go to the cathedral every day to look at how gorgeous it was. That wasn't what it was about. It was a place that you went every now and then, like the absolutely gorgeous theater, or to a really fancy restaurant with a perfect view over the gorgeous skyline. These we still have the same stuff. Money turns out to be a great measure. Like that really fancy rooftop bar or lounge or or restaurant isn't cheap. Nor is a ticket at a premium theater, which is an artistic, gorgeous thing. If you wanted to build a gorgeous thing as an attraction to see if people would come, that's fine. We have other gorgeous things. I've been to Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lago obs- obscenely gorgeous. Of course, it's like tiny compared to, you know, Buckingham Palace, or one of these old world kind of places, but it's insanely gorgeous. And people want to trash Trump all he comes out. He talks about the workmanship on the statues and the people who did it and how they don't do it like that anymore and how they did it. He's like fawning over the artwork. Well, why was that that way? Well, because the person who built the house, they weren't trying to build it to make a profit. They're building it with their own wealth to enjoy it uh, for themselves, which has kind of expanded because now, guess what? It's a super premium event space in Palm Beach, Florida. How about that? So, this is like romantic nonsense about how the finer parts of higher culture. You think somebody's going to compose a symphony if they're like a really gorgeous symphony, if they don't expect there to be the ability to be paid for their time? Like, you think everybody wants to be a starving artist? This is absolutely idiotic. It's absolutely idiotic, and so there isn't. The, Marx problematized. He says this tendency of capital is the impoverishment of social wealth. It, that's a romantic, crybaby attitude. Under, but all I can think about is this idiotic, these idiotic accounts on Twitter that are allegedly the right wing. You know, return with a with a V uh, mentality. It's the same freaking romantic mentality. Uh, I. Don't know. It's frustrating, but it's not surprising because those two are the left and right hand of the same monster. Saito continues. He says the wealth of society is not limited to social wealth. Marx also used the expression natural wealth to designate the natural and material conditions of production and reproduction. Think about how much money people spend to be able to go on epic camping trips so they can indulge in natural wealth. Oh, huh. <laughs> <laughs> Think of how many more people are able to do that because of high tech gear. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> These people are so full of shit, it kills me. For example, he wrote in Volume 1 of Capital, that's Marx, of course. External natural conditions can be divided from the economic point of view into two great classes, namely one, natural wealth and the means of subsistence, that is, a fruitful soil, waters teeming with fish, etc., and two, natural wealth and the instruments of labor, such as waterfalls, navigable rivers, wood, metal, coal, etc. Capital, Volume 1, 535. Saito Commentary. The richness of nature in the form of land, water, and forests, notice that those are literally projects within the Sustainable Development Goals, is obviously indispensable for human flourishing as a means of subsistence and production as well as for a healthy life. The abundance and quality of natural wealth provided by the earth surely counts as the fundamental wealth of all societies. Quote, the earth is the reservoir from whose bowels the use values are to be torn wrote Marx. That's, I guess, one way to say it. The statement is consistent with Marx's recognition of the essential contribution of nature to the production processes. Quote, labor is not the source of all wealth. Nature is just as much the source of use values, and it is surely of such that material wealth consists as labor. End quote. Okay. I'm about to go off on this, but I want to make sure I don't go off too soon. I'm going to carry on and then I'm going to go off. However... Out of the commodification of social and natural wealth, there arises an increasing tension between wealth and commodity because commodities focus one-sidedly on the value of the labor product and marginalize that which does not uh, possess value because the, quote, predetermined yardstick does not function properly for them. This tension is visible in terms of nature. On the one hand, natural forces are thoroughly exploited by capital as, quote, free gifts. Quote, this is Marx from Capital, Volume 3. Natural elements which go into production as agents without costing anything, whatever role they might play in production, do not go in as components of capital, but rather as a free natural power of capital. End quote. Nature enters the labor process and aids in the production of commodities together with the workers, but does not enter the valorization process as it is not a product of labor. Nature is free and capital seeks to use its power as much as possible. Capital's treatment of nature strengthens the destruction and squandering of the richness of nature in favor of capital's incessant valorization of wealth, of narrow wealth, commodities, profit. Nevertheless, nature remains the material bearer of wealth as value. Wealth is often something that capital does not create by itself. Capital creates neither knowledge and culture nor land and water. And wealth has its own characteristics and dynamics that are independent of and incompatible with capital's aims. I don't know that he, I don't, does he, like, he thinks nature is like just this free thing, like it's just free there, like, The extraction costs of ore, of water, of cleaning the water so that it can be potable. Like these, there's a lot of labor and effort that goes into that too. I'm sure he's aware of that because of the labor value, the labor basis of value or whatever, whatever. Consequently, as use value is subordinated to exchange value under the logic of capital's valorization that is blind to its own material substance, the contradiction manifests as metabolic rift. In other words, metabolic rift means that eventually we're going we're gonna to overshoot and destroy everything. As I described earlier, uh, that there's a fundamental rupture coming between our consumption of nature and our ability to continue consuming nature later. The book is really all about this concept of metabolic rift. Now... Maybe I should continue. I still want to go off about the Grand Canyon. On the other hand, nature is increasingly commodified because wild nature is worthless when left as it is. Its commodification, however, occurs by dissolving the abundance of social and natural wealth. Enclosure dissolved the commons. See, so if we decide that this section of, say, the wasteland desert is now owned by, you know, you know, uh, Joe Blow and Joe Blow bought it because he wants to try to develop mining rights or mining capacity on the, on the land. Well, now what he's done, you see, is that he's enclosed it. He's done enclosure on what used to be the commons. And that uh, happened historically. We're not really enclosing the commons anymore. We don't consider the desert to be everybody's, but nevertheless, Commodifying lands and expelling the people living on them. Nature was devastated after the expulsion from the land of peasants who had taken care of it. Eh, eh, that's a eh kind of answer right there. Capitalist farmers sought only short-term profit without taking good care of the soil. Well, you know, that turned out to be something that happened at first, but it turns out that the the intelligence can really be and has, in fact, an artificial intelligence research can be defined as... Uh, maximizing future opportunities and just raping the soil is what you do when you're an incompetent farmer, just trying to make, you know, the best you can off of what you got. But over time, farming develops and you get some really high level skills where you actually don't do that. And you can do high production yield year after year through intensive farming because you see when it's your property and you run your property into being valueless in five years by mismanagement, you've got a problem. So if you learn to manage your property correctly, that stewardship that the peasants allegedly had, actually, you have a very deeply vested interest in that. And the logic's a lot different. This is capitalist farmers only sought short-term profit without taking good care of the soil. This, that's a short-term problem that solves itself with markets. Quoting various, let me give you an example of where that's really happened, though, where People saw only short-term profit without taking good care of the soil. Ukraine, when? When Stalin unleashed Lysenkoism there. Uh, it turns out that I just learned recently that it were like 90 years out from that. And in the last few years before this conflict with Russia broke out, that's when Ukraine caught up to baseline. They lost so much agricultural capacity in the meantime that they only caught up after like 90 years. That's what degrowing a region does. It takes them a century to recover. But anyway, quoting various reports, Marx in Volume 1 of Capital, especially the French edition, also pointed to the fact that the most fertile lands in Scotland were totally laid waste after the enclosure. Yeah, okay, so when this first happened, stuff went wrong. Okay, well, you learn land management and land stewardship later. You have to. You don't have a choice. Your land, you're stuck with it. This, uh, these lands were actually unintentionally left wasted for the sake of more profitable usage. Quote, "...immense tracts of land, much of what is described in the statistical account of Scotland as, as having a pasturage and richness and extent of very, super, very superior description, and thus shut out from all cultivation and improvement, are, and are solely devoted to the support to the sport of a few persons for a very brief period of the year." Capital, Volume 1, 894 apparently this transformation of land usage had an immense impact on the daily life of people in the countryside. So he's talking about the disruption that came with a new economic model. I'll come back to this because I didn't rant about nature and I don't want to lose this yet with the Grand Canyon. One of the things that I'm thinking about when I was reading that part about nature earlier and I wanted to go off. So enjoying natural beauty and enjoying nature itself is so much easier in an advanced economy than in not one. Okay, so I happen to live in a very pretty area. I happen to live in an area with a lot of natural beauty. I live in East Tennessee. If I really, really, really was motivated to and wanted to take a weekend or a week project of it, I could go walk to the mountains and go be in the mountains and walk home. A lot of people don't have that. I get it. It's in its own weird ways, kind of beautiful everywhere, kind of. I've been to some pretty freaking ugly places looking at you, North Dakota. Um, Maybe it's nice not in November, but guess when I went. And so I'm just saying, I'm just saying, the thing is the Grand Canyon is spectacular beauty. I've not been to the Grand Canyon myself. I've been to Arizona many times, but I've flown over the Grand Canyon a bunch and I've looked out the window of an airplane at the Grand Canyon and I'm like, whoa. And I get a real sense, not just of how beautiful it is, but how beautiful it'd be to visit there. Guess what? I live in East Tennessee I can walk to the ten- to the to the Smoky Mountains if I want to. If I want to take a week or a month to do that. I can also drive there in half an hour and drive home later the same day and go out and have Mexican food like you're supposed to after you go to the mountains. Or can I drive to the Grand Canyon? Not easily. I have to fly there. I don't have to. I can drive for like three or four days and get there. I think it's three days of continuous driving to get to the Grand Canyon. So I could drive to the Grand Canyon, but I could fly there in a day. Go check it out for a couple days, fly home. The ability to see the Grand Canyon, to see the mountains of the Rockies, the different parts of the Rockies, the Canadian Rockies, to, to, to see... Niagara Falls, which I've visited many times, to see the natural beauty of all different parts of the world is so much easier to appreciate this natural beauty all around the world when we have an advanced economy that's not been degrown, when we still have airplanes. We don't depend on short-distance light rail and no cars. If we have short-distance light rail, no cars, and no airplanes, I'm never going to see the Grand Canyon. So I don't want to hear these people talk about the appreciation of nature because most people as little as like 50 or 100 years ago, never left the county in which they were born. So maybe they could appreciate the natural beauty of their county, but they didn't appreciate an awful lot of other natural beauty. The answer to that in the degrowth sublated higher form version under under their stupid program is I fucking shit you not virtual travel. So you can put on your metaverse AI headset or whatever the fuck it is your virtual reality headset and pretend that you went to the Grand Canyon with your goggles on or pretend you went to Rome with your goggles. You don't really go. You're still sitting in your living room. You probably are looking around in awe, swinging your arms around, trying to look at the the, the spaces and clubbing your kid in the head because you can't see him because you're wearing a fucking mask. Like the whole thing is ridiculous. But the travel industry is lurching into this for sustainability's sake. This is your sublated... Higher form of reunification of man and nature is that rather than being able to go and experience nature yourself, you can put on a fucking set of goggles and headsets when you're not in the middle of a brownout. That's their vision. What a great program. So that's where I wanted to go off. Lots of bad words. It happens. These people are ridiculous. They're going to kill so many people and they're going to ruin so many lives unnecessarily because they're such crackpots and they're running a death cult. But I digress. Apparently, Saito says, this transformation of land usage had an immense impact. This is a part I didn't want to read. I don't know if I actually have to read this. I'm not going to read this paragraph. I don't care that what he's talking about is that there's a lot of historical disruption involved in the enclosure process. Okay? So then all family members had to work in the factories to make a living in the city. The loss of access to the commons significantly increased the financial burden on households because now they had to buy their means of subsistence. In other words, the shift from medieval feudal economies into uh, where the peasants actually didn't own, there wasn't really the commons actually, lords owned all the land more or less, and, uh, it was just too big for them to kind of monitor and they offered protection and in or in, blah, blah, in order, and you gave them food. It wasn't really as great of a thing, but it's just complaining about the disruption that came with shifting to the, to the, uh, to the new form. And he complains about how food culture was destroyed and adulterated food. And, you know, in the 1850s and 60s, how people were selling bogus milk and all this other crap. Um, These foods were apparently unhealthy and unsafe, but since they were cheap, poor working class had to depend on them in order to fill their hungry stomachs. In short, he says, culture, skills, and knowledge were impoverished, very much like when Lysenkoism came to Ukraine. That's why farming took a century to recover, because culture, skills, and knowledge were impoverished. But I don't think we're supposed to be talking about that. No, no, no. Stalin was basically just doing a different kind of capitalism. That's what the Marxists think. He did it wrong. They got it right now. Don't worry. The financial burden for the working-class families increased and the quality of natural wealth was sacrificed as the world became increasingly commodified. From the perspective of capital, this same situation looks very different, however. Yeah, because we're not telling this fucked-up conspiracy theory about what happened. Paradoxically, this is how capitalism took off, emancipating the full potentialities of productive forces as workers became more and more dependent on commodities in the market. It's like commodities, bad, okay, whatever. This tension between wealth and the commodity is what underlies Lauderdale's paradox. James Maitland, the 8th Earl of Lauderdale, pointed to an inverse relationship between public wealth and private riches, namely, if one increases, the other decreases. So to have private riches means you're taking away from the public wealth, because you're hoarding it to yourself, apparently. According to Lauderdale, this is a paradox that Adam Smith overlooked in believing that the wealth of nations is an aggregate sum of private riches. So you ignored all the commonwealth that's out there. But instead, he, d- he demonstrated this point by introducing the third concept of public wealth. Public wealth is 99% bullshit because it's a synthetic concept that combines, it's a synthesis, it is a dialectical combination of public what is it, public wealth and private riches, I guess. Lauderdale defined public wealth as consisting of all that man desires as useful or delightful to him. Oh, uh-huh, isn't that great? In contrast, private riches has an additional character in that it comprises all that man's desire all that man desires as useful or delightful to him, which exists in a degree of scarcity. Oh as so will just use yeah, right, of course. The difference between the two concepts is scarcity. Expressed in Marxian terms, public wealth possesses use value but not value because it exists abundantly in nature and is available to everyone that wishes to use it in order to satisfy their needs. Public wealth includes the air, common lands, forests, and river water. Public wealth, however, can be turned into private riches when it becomes scarce, Lauderdale argued that scarcity does not necessarily arise from the exhaustion of natural resources. It is often intentionally created by constructing gates and by forcefully expelling people from the land. In other words, land, water, and food are artificially made scarce so that they can function to augment the private riches of their owners expressed in monetary terms as well as the wealth of nations that comprises the sum total of individual riches." Hold on, land, water, and food, or land I can kind of get is maybe made more scarce as more people occupy it and own pieces of it. Water and food, we have more food than we know what to do with. We're the fattest country in the history of the world. What are you talking about, bro? Water is more abundant. We're like on the edge of cracking desalinization, guys. Water, this isn't a thing, like, this is bullshit because you don't have access to the river and you can't go drink out of the river and get dysentery, like, Okay. The obvious problem here is, as Lauderdale argued, that the increase in private riches is inevitably accompanied by the augmentation of scarcity in a society, that is, the decrease in the free and abundant common public wealth for the majority of people. As seen in the primitive accumulation of capital, common lands and forests were gated and became inaccessible and scarce for peasants, which increased the misery of the masses and the devastation of the natural environment, while this process of creating artificial scarcity amplified the private riches of a few. I mean, that is a really weird reading on a lot of stuff, but... What he's neglecting to talk about is the tragedy of the commons, which points back to the depopulation program. See, if you if things are shared in common, I've seen this in China, by the way. There's these water, there's water like these lakes and stuff, kind of like all over the place. And there's people out there like doing most ridiculous fishing things ever. I saw this dude with a stick like slapping the water. I think he's trying to hit a fish um, at one point, or just swinging nets, like all kinds of stuff. Well, you will definitely if that's what's going on, and those people are like starving because they're you're not supposed to say that word or what they are. They're bitter workers. And so they, um, that's how they get their, they're starving because they're in communism. And so that's how they get like protein. And so what happens is rampant overfishing and the actual destruction of the waterway uh, through. The tragedy of the commons. If everybody thinks that they can go do that, then they end up destroying it when you have too many people. The solution could be have fewer people or have massive land management that's run cooperatively, say, by stakeholders, which is where we're going to end up. While there obviously exists natural scarcity of arable lands and available water independently of humans, scarcity under capitalism is different, Saito tells us. It is a social One, This social scarcity is also an artificial one because the richness of social and natural wealth was originally abundant in the sense that they did not possess value or were accessible to members of the community. That's not, I mean, this is just made up. It's just ridiculous. Scarcity must be created through destroying the commons. Yeah, well, scarcity is created through protecting the commons from the tragedy of the commons by allowing people to buy responsibility for that portion that is theirs. Even if this brings about a disastrous situation for the many in an economic and ecological sense, all he talked about for the disastrous situation was the transition. Everybody's standard of living in all the places he mentioned are super much higher than they were under peasantry times. Lauderdale provided cases where edible products were intentionally thrown away and arable lands were deliberately wasted. Yeah, that happens. So that market supply could be limited in order to keep commodity prices high. That's complicated. Sometimes there's that kind of misfeasance there, but it's complicated. There are reasons why, like, you don't want to muck with markets by giving free shit away uh, or plummeting the price of a commodity because actually, a lot of people's livelihoods do. Like, let's say everybody grows way too much corn one year, and you have farmers who are just kind of barely making it. But now there's like three times as much corn as there needs to be, so the price of corn drops, and the farmer who's barely making it now, all of a sudden, is only making about a third of what he should he had predicted he'd make for the year because the commodity price dropped. Mm. See, there, there, this is complicated. Uh, here the fundamental tension between wealth and the commodity. And this is the paradox of wealth that marks the h- historical peculiarity of the uh, capitalist system. These people act like we haven't come up with like really effective solutions to this stuff in the meantime, by the way, too. I'm not going to go into the different solutions like to the corn thing, but we've come up with really elaborate solutions to a lot of these problems, including like the, original destruction of, of farmland by people who wanted to turn a profit off of it and it turns out that they were stuck with fallow lands and it turns out that that just becomes a liability so over time they've got to either figure it out or sell it to somebody who can and then you start solving problems and guess what rehabilitation occurs these these are solvable problems what you need to solve the problems is energy and people the two things that they want to reduce It is in this sense, Saito tells us, of the term that the opposition of abundance and scarcity needs to be discussed. Oh, we need to understand the words as you flipped them over upside down. No matter how much capitalism increases the productive forces, the paradox of wealth, which sounds like complete bullshit because it is, does not disappear, but is rather intensified due to the constant creation of artificial scarcity. Your artificial scarcity is a lie. It's just made up. At the same time, what it is is an entitlement and a lack of appreciation for what we have. It's literally petulance turned into a paradox. I am petulant, so it's a paradox. That's stupid. At the same time, it is not necessary to maximize productive forces in order to overcome this kind of scarcity. A post-scarcity society can be founded upon the reconstruction of the abundance of the commons found in pre-capitalist societies on a higher scale through the transcendence of artificial scarcity. See, not everybody can go to the Grand Canyon that would damage it. We could transcend the artificial scarcity of the ability to go to the Grand Canyon by letting people slap a VR headset on and pretend they're at the Grand Canyon. That's one. Or somehow we're going to put the abundance of the commons back, like pre-capitalist societies, but we're going to do it on a higher scale. And what that's going to be is stakeholder capitalism is what that's going to be. That's how it's going to work. The post-scarcity, they're going to reconstruct the abundance of the commons, but that's going to require management. And that management is going to be controlled by the people who know how to properly manage it, who are the degrowth communists, aka the stakeholders. Marx's degrowth communism aims to repair the irreparable metabolic rift, which energy would repair, but they've spent most of the, he spent most of the book arguing that that's not true, but for stupid reasons. And to rehabilitate the non-consumerist abundance of the social and natural wealth beyond the Lauderdale paradox through the negation of the negation. There's just a bunch of words that barely mean a fucking thing. God, I hate these people. This is the stupidest thing in the whole world, except that it's going to kill a lot of people if you can't learn to see through the mystification of it. So section three, the negation of the negation and the abundance in communism. That should make you just want to puke, the abundance in communism. Are you kidding me? The first paragraph starts off, primitive accumulation of capital as the first negation, so you're negating the natural world by accumulating capital, dismantles individual property as founded on the labor of its proprietor. In contrast, communism aims at the negation of the negation through which the expropriators are expropriated and the original unity of humanity and nature is reestablished. So let's linger on those words. Expropriating the expropriators. What does that mean? It means destroying the capitalists and their wealth. Actually seizing and summarily wasting their assets is what it refers to. Seize the means of production. Well, communists don't know how, so then they waste the means of production. You can see they've seized the means of production of education in colleges and universities, and now college degrees are losing their value like a stone dropped off of a cliff. They are plummeting in value. They've seized the... Uh, intellectual and cultural assets, the capital built up by, by centuries in some cases of, 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 higher educational promise and research capacity. And since they don't know what the hell to do with it, now that they have it, they're literally turning it into like DEI Hamas factories, terrorist organizations cells, and just destroying, completely destroying it within just, I mean, Harvard was started in like 1636 or something like that. And like, I talk to people all the time who just straight up won't hire people from Harvard because the, the asset that they're gaining and going to Harvard is becoming increasingly toxic, except in the cesspool that we could really refer to as the real masters of the universe swamp, which is a revolving door of all these kind of losers who are doing great until the system collapses, in which case they're all screwed big time. Uh, Marx framed this Expropriating the expropriators, which is kicking out the landlords, is what that really means. Destroying the capitals and you know, the capitalists and seizing and wasting their assets, Marx framed it as recovering individual property. So this is a very interesting concept and really the crux. See, I just wanted to talk originally about how this the Marxists are pushing degrowth by redefining abundance, wealth, and scarcity. Aha! They're stupid trickies. And this is what the well-being economy is based off of, is this linguistic lie. And then I was reading it very carefully again and stumbled upon how important this part is, this individual property part. So to get there, Saito goes into this long discussion about the, I'm not going to read this part of the this section three, uh, about the various different edits that Marx made to the relevant portion of Capital about the negation of the negation. He wants to really draw what Marx must have meant and how important it was to Marx because Marx actually edited this thing like three times. I'm not going to get too into that, but I have to touch on it. Um, Here's the takeaway. Marx modified this passage in uh, capital uh, like three times. In particular, this is the quote. uh, In the third edition, Marx had edited it specifically. Saito tells us, Marx modified this passage in the third edition in order to make... More explicit, sorry. In order to more explicitly distinguish between private property and individual property, so this is a very key concept to the degrowth communism idea. He's dedicating an entire section of the kind of anchor chapter of the book to this idea about um, degrowth communism, to talking about how uh, individual property differs from private property and how important that is to what Marx really meant all along and what the true understanding of the Marxist project is. Okay, so it boils down to the, dis- to the distinguishing between private property and individual property, because if you remember from, say, the Communist Manifesto, chapter two, Marx says that communism can be summarized in a single sentence, which is abolish private property. So obviously they're not into private property, but he was into allegedly individual property. So what in the world is it? Uh, well, this is another word game. And the idea is to get around the fact that Marx wanted to abolish private property, which, by the way, wouldn't be a very easy sell for most people. Most people think about stuff that they have and that they don't want to give up when they hear that private property has to be abolished. And they think, well, communism might be you know, a great idea in theory, but I don't want that because I don't want to have to give up my stuff. And then people act like that's all like super selfish. But if you talk to the smart Marxists, they say, no, it's not about that. Marx didn't ever intend to get rid of all private property. He just meant to get rid of bourgeois private property, which is actually kind of what he says in Capital, or sorry, in the Communist Manifesto, but not exactly. Um, He does say, so to be exact about what he says, he goes off in a whole paragraph about how bourgeois private property is different than other forms of private property. And then he ends with, communism can be summarized in a single sentence, abolition of private property. So you could read that as him saying all private property, which I don't think is very fruitful, frankly. uh, But what he's really trying to abolish is bourgeois private property, which is capital. In CRT, it's whiteness. In queer theory, it's normalcy. Um... And so what we're dealing with then with this individual property versus private property is another word game to get around the idea that Marx wanted to abolish private property uh, as the main activity of his cult, religion, and communism because it's literally what he said. I mean, in EPM and Economic Philosophic Manuscripts, he actually says that communism is the positive transcendence of private property as human self-estrangement. So what individual property is about, in a sense, is making a carve-out It's a fake term to make it look like there's some kind of a a exemption for your own, your underwear or something like that. The stuff you really value. No, you still get to have your own, a few of your own private effects, personal effects. Uh, But it's up to determining, you know, what you're allowed to have and what you're not allowed to have. I mean, during the cultural revolution in China, they destroyed anything personal if it reflected old culture. So you couldn't have stuff that held up old culture. Um, but individual property is what you're allowed to have left over after abolishing productive capital that you can make a profit, profit off of, which is the bourgeois private property. So I encourage you to either ask a Soviet or a survivor of the Chinese Cultural Revolution about that and see what individual property really looked like for them. What this is actually referring to, though, and I we'll build this out through the text in a moment, is a system called distributism that you've probably never heard of. Distributeism. Yeah. So you understand it has something to do with distributing, right? And interestingly enough, as a sidebar, that's a very important sidebar. Distributism was not originally a Marxist program. The word distributism or distributist never appears in Saito's book, but what he describes, and I'll read the paragraph in a moment, is exactly distributism. What he's describing is a distribute, the post, uh, sorry, degrowth communism is a distributism program. It's and this is what he's saying was Marx's original point by uh, doing the negation of the negation and getting back to the uh, awakening or the the revivification of of individual property. Now, what makes it interesting is distributism is is very popular with the post-liberal so-called right, which is I call the right hand of the left right now. In fact, they're explicitly... Embracing distributism as the economic model, especially in the so-called neo-integralist uh, dimensions of the post-liberal uh, fake right. In other words, the so-called far right and far left are two wings of the same bird. Uh, but that's beside the point. So, in fact, in 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 the concept of distributism is explicitly a Catholic integralist concept. Now. Integralism is not something I talk a lot about. Um, It's important. You should look it up. Uh, It is tied to but not identical with fascism. The idea was that it was going to be a program the Catholics came up with to reintegrate church and state into, uh, I mean, the German word for that is Reich, um, which is uncomfortable but uh, it was a Catholic integralist concept that was originally described by Pope Leo Thirteenth in his encyclical uh, called Rerum Novarum. And what distributism refers to in practice is that large concentrations of productive capital are not going to be allowed because they uh, take too much private property capacity from other people. So they will be distributed, or in other words, seized and redistributed, uh, unless they emerge in some kind of a cooperative fashion. Marxists and integralists disagree on who would own what and why and how under such a system, but the idea is that private ownership, while it should be encouraged and should be uh, maintained, cannot overcome the public or common good. So you hear that a lot from common good conservatism in the post-liberal and national conservative movement. We need a common good conservatism. We need a common good uh, program. So what, how does it work in practice is you have a stakeholder council, which originally under the Integralist would have been the Catholic Church, that determines when you basically got too big for your britches and they help you to distribute your wealth and riches and capital to other people in a more cooperative fashion. Um, just by the by, even proponents of the distributist model admit that it is a season redistribute model above the small business. And they also admit that in whatever form it takes, it's that, that it almost certainly guarantees that it will require a far lower standard of living in general than we have today. I'd say probably a lot of starving and freezing in the dark, um, there'll be very limited transport, very limited communications. I read a paper about distributism that said you can basically just assume that things like iPhones will not exist because you can't concentrate the degrees of capital necessary to invent, build, and distribute those, uh, even not even at an affordable cost, just period. Um, so drastic uh, limitations in transportation, communication, energy, agriculture, and so on. But at least we, I guess, get to be closer to being back to nature and more people get to realize themselves as masters of their own destiny with their small businesses and their little carve out of land or whatever. Um, so the distributive distributist program is the kind of reaction, which is the right hand of the left version of... of Yeah, we're going to have private property, but it's really communism. So it's like uh, the idea of Marx's individual property, although I don't think that's where they got the idea, gets taken to a very high level of uh, you can have lots of individual property, but there's still limits and there's still going to be a body or of, say, stakeholders who determine kind of where those limits are. Uh, Saito, for his part, summarizes Marx on the point in the following way. Uh, and this lends some insight into what is meant by the Marxist understanding of, of distributism. He said, he's talking about the Paris Commune, which was an extremely formative thing for Marx to look at. He says, the Paris Commune was an attempt to, quote, make an individual property a truth through the negation of the negation. As explained, cooperative production aims to regulate social production through common planning and communal control of the means of production. This is distributism, guys. In this way, it allocates individual shares among members through democratic and communal management. You could just add for the common good, and you're there, as determined through integralist Catholic doctrine, and you're all the way there. This is how individual property is rehabilitated. In a sense, individual property is equivalent to cooperative property. So individual is equal to cooperative? Interesting. For Marx, this is possible communism. See, the other kinds of communism, I guess, are not real. There's actual communism, which is the positive transcendence of private property's human self-estrangement. But positive or possible communism, I should say, is when individual property is equivalent to cooperative property. Uh, he says here he seems to have established a concept of individual property as a clearly distinct, as clearly distinguished from private property, which led to the modification of the relevant expression in the third edition of Capital. Okay, so again, cooperative production, so cooperative property aims to regulate social production through common planning and communal control of the means of production, stakeholder capitalism. In other words, in this way, it allocates individual shares among members through democratic and communal management. Stakeholder capitalism or distributism. Those are synonyms. But they're also synonyms with Marx meant by individual property, a.k.a. possible communism. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's all coming together. Saito gives a summary. Marx argues that developed capitalist societies need to return to, quote, a higher form of the archaic type after transcending the system of private property and capitalism. End quote. What Marx said, uh... The higher form of the archaic type of property refers to is communist property. This personally makes me think of other Marxist oxymorons like democratic centralism from Mao and freedom under socialist discipline. There will be no freedom without discipline. There will be no democracy without centralism. There will be uh, no property without uh, communism, communal property, common wealth, Now, to take the most important digression of the podcast, let's just lay out the cards, and we're doing this in the middle because that way it's harder to find. That's what the the world economic. This is all what the World Economic Forum and United Nations and WHO masters of the universe are after. It's this distributivist distributist system, and that's what we're staring at in the face here. Whether it's from Pope Leo or Pope Francis, doesn't matter. Whether it's from uh, Marx and Saito and degrowth communism, doesn't matter. Whether it's from the Paris Commune, doesn't matter. What we're learning here is that degrowth communism is supposed to revive and animate and rehabilitate the distributist project on the left. Degrowth communism directly points at a distributist system and calls it Marxist. That's the game of the world right now. And it works like this. Stakeholders will ultimately determine how our individual property will be used. So-called communist property or, or cooperative property is property kind of shared by everybody and managed by all the stakeholders, quote, through democratic and communal management. The idea is that productive private property will be abolished and managed abolished in private hands and managed by the stakeholder committee, which is the new Soviet. But just like Saito describes about the Paris Commune, the individualist and collectivist elements of other property will be in tension, which is a dialectical tension. Their synthesis is going to be cooperative property or communist property. And this is what the World Economic Forum and United Nations and I guess World Health Organization and so on are shooting for. And by the way, this is everything. Hence kind of hiding it in the middle of this podcast. The idea is that they alone, their committee, the the UNWEF, if we might call it that, the UN World Economic Forum, they alone control all of the productive property, all of it. Everyone else shares everything else according to their distributist scheme, and that's wholly according to the rules they create and dictate under something called stakeholder capitalism. They're going to run all of that on a steady state circular economy model. They get to run the whole thing through a model of corporate subsidiarity, where the big corporations that are playing ball and useful to them get to participate and keep operating, and that's ensured to work through their uh, their corrupt public-private partnership model of stakeholder capitalism. In practice for right now at least, and maybe later, that's run through financial racketeering like ESG scoring. Ultimately, the stakeholder Soviet, which currently decides on how the ESG scores work in the first place, moment by moment, they change according to what they want or need. Ultimately, that stakeholder Soviet will make decisions on how all of the public, private, cooperative property can be used in the global commune and only by recognized global citizens. That is, this is all a distributist model run through a model of fascistic, corporate solidarity uh, subsidiarity so that the stakeholder Soviet can never be assigned any blame for any part of it it's a pretty neat trick isn't it so what does it look like for your life here's an example there's actually a World economic Forum document about the future ownership of cars so one of the it's in four steps the last step almost literally doesn't make any sense it talks about how the cars will own themselves but in the because of AI or something but in the intermediate, what will happen is there'll be community cars, kind of like those uh, those um scooters that you can just go, put a dollar in and go ride your scooter and their they're community scooters. Nobody really owns them, but everybody kind of does, but there's rules of the road. So it'll be like that with your cars. So there will, you won't have, there'll be no private car ownership because you could do all kinds of things with your private car, but you might need a car. So you can, you don't have to rent a car from a car rental facility. You can go just grab a car, but you think, man, people are going to really abuse those things. Well, that's where the, um, that's where the, the distributist model really kicks in, right? People will not abuse those things because your social credit score will determine your global citizenship status, will determine your access to it. And any fucking around in the car, any doing things you're not supposed to, any overdriving the engine, driving it too hard, driving it too fast, driving recklessly, trying to have sex in the car, any of the things that you might do, hauling something you're not supposed to haul, going somewhere you're not supposed to go, leaving the car somewhere you're not supposed to leave, any of these things will dent your social credit system and your whole life gets worse. That's how this will work. Nobody owns their own car whatsoever. You will own nothing, but you'll be happy because you can go access a car anytime one is actually available. Of course, there won't be enough, probably. So they'll be prioritized according to your social credit score. And like you can schedule that out, you know, maybe eight years in advance or whatever. And then the way you behave in and around and near and everything the car will determine your future car access and everything else. So there will be massive amounts of regulating your behavior through this stakeholder model, which determines what the acceptable behaviors and not be, and unacceptable behaviors are. So maybe if you want to be able to ride in, you can ride in a car somewhere, but if you want to be able to use a car to get back, maybe you have to go, uh, maybe your, your car has to play a propaganda video the entire time both ways, or audio or whatever that you pay attention to, something like that. Um, you can imagine these things anyway, or you have to go do some job for the government and as a side gig in the in the middle of your trip you want to drive a car to go see the grand canyon or whatever so you drive the car you probably can't go that far maybe you live near it and you drive your car well while you're there you have to go do some communist activity and then you can get back in the car and go back but you can't get back in the car and go back until you do it these are the kinds of things that they have and only recognized global citizens who have already bought into the program will have this privilege whatsoever it's not a right Uh, It's certainly not a right. Don't get that confused. And this is the distributist model. There will be a distribution. They will distribute access to use of the vehicles according to how good of a global citizen you are, and the social credit system will manage all of it. And if you think this is just a Democratic Party, globalist, UN, World Economic Forum catastrophe, I mean, Nikki Haley was talking about roughly the same thing uh, in a video that I saw today. So apparently she's all in on uh, this This program. And like I said, the post liberal right is also very much not down with full property rights. They want to enter into a um, distributist model as well. If it's more integralist, it's more ecumenical now, they call it Christian nationalism sometimes in that regard. Uh, You're going to have to show other signs of being a good citizen that's working for the common good in order to gain full access, but you're still operating on a social credit system. And so it's funny when you see the so-called dissident right and the evil tyrannical left literally trying to build the same system with slightly different parameters, which could definitely easily be integrated into one set of parameters later after the whole system's built and installed on people. Hmm. Okay. But anyway, I digress that's only the whole story. Uh, But what the hell is communist property? So let's turn back to Saito and finish out this this chapter or section. What Marx demanded in the civil war in France, that's a piece of writing, as the united cooperative societies is now specified in what they should uh, should be realized through the principles of a steady state economy eminent to the archaic commune. So a steady state economy that puts you in the archaic commune conditions of sharing everything. Communist property, he says, is not just based on cooperative production, but also seeks to revive a communal form of property in Maurer's sense of the mark cooperative, which is in short, the kind of cooperative that's half nomadic, half agrarian, where all the land is held in common, owned by no one and everyone And so we could extend that to productive capital is owned and shared by everyone and no one, but with severe restrictions on what can be done with it and its products is governed by the commune or like the World Economic Forum guy said a few years ago, they understand that you only want the benefits of the product. So they're not going to sell you the product and give you ownership of it. They're going to sell you the benefits of the product while they retain ownership. And who are they? They They're the corporations that are in and on board enough to where they get to be part of the stakeholder consortium or the soviet that actually runs the whole fascistic communistic system degrowth communism is the pathway to get there to justify this program to the left As discussed in the previous chapter, Saito tells us, the archaic commune was characterized by the dualism of collectivism and individualism. This dualism needs to be rehabilitated in Western Europe, not by going back to isolated small-scale production in rural communes, but by transforming the large-scale production developed under capitalism into cooperative production. See, It, it sees the means of production and turn it into something that's managed by, not the state now, but the stakeholder council. Each of the corporations is going to be just attuned to make sure that they're all working in concert and doing the same thing, but they still look like corporations. You kind of feel how the new model works. Private property is turned into individual property, whatever that means. It means it's shared by everybody, but it's because it's not private. You can't withhold it from other people. It's yours, sort of, like it's individually something you get to use but you don't have the right to exclude other people from the use of it. In other words, that's the difference between private and individual property. But its content can be better expressed as cooperative property in the higher form of the archaic type. Indeed, this understanding will prove decisive in interpreting the term communal wealth, which in German looks more literally like cooperative wealth, uh, which appears in Marx's famous description of communism in the critique of the Gotha program. Okay, did, did, did you follow the, first of all, this is a distributist, but did you follow what just happened? Right? So cooperate, all of the property is going to get turned into cooperative property as the higher form of the archaic type, which means it's all going to be shared in common. That means you're going to own nothing and you're going to be happy. Everything that you own or you have will be delivered by drone. And then when somebody else with a higher social credit score summons it, it goes away from you. Everything is shared according to, uh, the dictates in terms of who's allowed to have it when they're allowed to have it and how long they're allowed to have it what they're allowed to do with it via social credit scoring and because everything's going to be connected to the internet and everything else everything's going to be recording you all the time to make sure your social credit is up to up to scratch to be able to to use it and that's going to be communal property and having lots of that will increase our communal wealth through the magic of communism and this is all very important for getting back to nature. Into to degrowth communism, which is, frankly, a Rousseauian romantic death cult that valorizes going back to nature as opposed to, you know, living a productive and, and, and healthy and prosperous life. So Saito tells us, there's another important term worth paying attention to in the passage on the negation of the negation in capital. The term land, you're going to mess with more words, used in the quote above is Erde in German. It also means earth. In fact, Marx used this expression to designate natural resources other than land, too. Marx argued that the earth and natural resources must be controlled in common, meaning that it must be used cautiously. Oh, so it's going to be held in common and used cautiously. Well, who could possibly determine how natural resources could be used cautiously? The Stakeholder Council. And who's going to actually do the mining and all of that? Well, the approved corporations that are in the stakeholder cabal, the new Soviet meaning that it must be used cautiously so as to care for the interest of future generations. It has to be sustainable. Marx wrote in Volume 3 of Capital, in which the term erda is translated as earth, saying, quote, "...from the standpoint of a higher socioeconomic formation, the private property of particular individuals in the earth will appear just as absurd as the private property of one man in other men." Even an entire society, nation, or all simultaneously existing societies taken together are not the owners of the earth. They are simply its possessors, its beneficiaries, and have to bequeath it in an improved state to succeeding generations as boni patris familias. As, uh, in its capital, uh, Volume 3, 911, Saito explains. The earth is what the current generation succeeded from the previous one, and they are obliged to pass it on to the next generation without destroying it. This, however, is what capitalism cannot fulfill due to its one-sided focus on the endless augmentation of private riches. By the way, this is the same argument Marcuse made in One Dimensional Man, right before saying that liberation presupposes a reduction in the standard of living and the future world population in chapter 9. By contrast, Saito tells us, the perspective of sustainability is essential for enriching social and natural wealth, especially because capitalism is a system of profit-making, private property, and anarchic competition. See, it's not centrally programmed and cooperative and strategic and rational. Against the logic of commodification by capital, communism seeks the commodification, sorry, the commonification of wealth, not the commodification by capital. Communism seeks the commonification of wealth. So we're all going to share all the wealth together. However, this statement must not be understood as the full realization of human desire to enjoy the world's riches without any constraint. Marx was well aware that the availability of natural wealth is inevitably limited and cannot be arbitrarily used for satisfying unlimited human desires. This is why the negation of the negation transcends artificial scarcity but not scarcity as such. So what's operatively or hyster- historically meant by scarcity when capitalism uh, is when capitalism leads capitalists to control capital for profit and that limits communal or cooperative wealth and communism is supposed to communify Wealth or commonify, make common wealth. So skipping a little bit further, because wealth has now been redefined, scarcity is been redefined, abundance is getting redefined, uh, but also because Saito is mostly addressing this critic named Cohen, arguing about eco-socialism and Marx's vision of abundance. Uh, I'm just going to kind of skip the argument. It bears on what I'm going to say next, but I think we can get by without it. In order to understand Marx's vision of communist abundance correctly, uh, Saito's explaining, one needs to understand the category of scarcity as an inherently socio-historical category. That means man-made. According to Marx, scarcity has two aspects, social and natural. Natural scarcity cannot be entirely overcome no matter how much technology may advance. By contrast, social scarcity increases in capitalism in the face of unlimited capital expansion everything is by definition scarce in capital. Capital is capital is, always is, and this cannot be stressed strongly enough, it always must remain as a matter of inner systema- uh, systemic determination, insuperably scarce, even when under certain conditions it is contradictorily overproduced. So that means their definition of scarcity is like a stupid technical economic one and not the one that you normally think of. Like, I can't get it, but it means technically that you can't get it without money and they're playing this word game making you think stuff is scarce when it's not actually scarce it's that you just have to buy it and oh no you know scarce sounds bad. So capitalism produces scarcity. Oh no, we're going to go hungry. No, it's not. You just actually have to buy it, which means you have to get a job, which is the unwritten thing that none of them want to do. What you're noticing is all this taking care of stuff for a few generations, there's really nowhere in here where there's anybody being responsible for their stuff because nobody owns their own stuff. It's all communally owned. So the community has to be responsible for all the stuff, but nobody ever has personal responsibility. They get to outsource that to the stakeholder committee that's going to decide everything and make sure that all the distribution all the distribution is is, you know, done in a wisdomous way. And that wisdomous way is going to be according to whether or not you satisfy their tire ty- their tyranny. It's just like China. And so Saito says the more capital develops for the sake of overcoming self-imposed scarcity, the more destructive the entire system becomes. But the abundance it generates can never eliminate the artificial scarcity created by capital itself. This is the fundamental paradox of wealth and capitalism, which I've already said is, a bunch of baloney. Saito explains that what Marx must mean is that, quote, what needs to be overcome in a post-capitalist society is not scarcity as such, but the objective conditions of socially specific capital accumulating scarcity. So we have to abolish capital and make sure that anybody that has access to capital is put on the right program. In other words, it's going to be a distributist model. He then notes kind of giving away the real game that in Grundrisse, Marx said something way more cult-religious than what his interpretation is, and he's still having this argument with his critic Cohen. So here's what Marx wrote in Grundrisse 488. Nevertheless, there is a certain ambivalence in the Grundrisse 2, sorry, this is this is Saito, where Marx explicitly stated that, quote, and this is Grundrisse 488, quote, full development of human mastery over the forces of nature, those of so-called nature, as well as humanity's own nature. So, Marx said that the program is actually, this is a cult, right? Is complete, full development of human mastery over all the forces of nature, those of so-called nature, and over humanity's own nature. We're going to remake everything. That's what Marx's real program was about. Somehow the communists never quite see that. They never quite get it. I mean, some of them do, like Lenin, who understood that we got to make a new man, or Marcuse, who actually says we need a biological foundation for socialism, kind of get it. But the program is to remake all of nature for humanity, just like Mark said in economic philosophic manuscripts when he was young, including humanity itself as part of nature. So Saito brushes all this aside though and rescues his guru, In the following way, he says, however, as discussed in previous chapters, Marx's treatment of nature became more nuanced in the 1860s. So, you know, young he was, needed the money he did or something, you know, oh, Marx was just young when he wrote that. Later, he had a more nuanced version that agrees with me, and he wasn't totally saying that we should remake everything, including man. But here's what Marx said that he was after in the Critique of the Gotha Programme. In a higher phase of communist society, after the enslaving and subordination of the individual to the division of labor, and thereby also the antithesis between mental and physical labor has vanished. After labor has become not only a means of life, but life's prime want. Pay attention to that line. After labor has become not only a means of life, but life's prime want. Labor becomes life's prime want. After productive forces have also increased with the all-around development of the individual, it turns him into a full communist, the new man, and all the springs of common cooperative and communal wealth flow more abundantly. Only then can the narrow horizon of bourgeois right be crossed and its entirety and society inscribe on its banners from each according to his abilities to each according to his need. So only after man is completely remade so that labor becomes not only how he lives but his life's prime want so that you'll want to do the work of building society and only after all the productive forces have completely increased including the all-around development of the individual and so the new socialist man arises only then Can we actually say from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs? So somehow, you know, this is the central passage from the critique of the Gotha program here that uh, Saito is focusing on, but he doesn't notice that what Marx is saying is only after everybody joins the cult can we really claim communism. That's what it actually says. Man has to be completely remade before any of this is going to work. Well, guess what, guys? You're not going to remake man, so none of it's going to work. So after acknowledging that some of Marx's critics actually have a point about Marx maybe being kind of, you know, a little bit aggressive in terms of what he thought was possible with abundance, uh, here's what Saito says to rescue him back to degrowth communism. Uh, What he says is that we're we're actually just misunderstanding what Marx must have meant by common wealth and abundance. Uh, he says, and this is Saito, Thus, it is not compelling to argue that Marx's conception of abundance demanded the satisfaction of all unlimited desires. It is also possible to imagine a different kind of abundance of wealth, that is, one founded upon the abundance of common wealth. Here one needs to recall the Lauderdale paradox, the capitalist process of creating artificial scarcity. Transcendence of the artificial scarcity of private riches as the negation of the negation requires the reestablishment of the abundance of common wealth, which is available to everyone without the mediation of monetary exchange. So you should just be able to go get shit for free, and that's when it really works. The point is that this rehabilitation of communal abundance does not have to negate natural scarcity. No, the point is that you're going to have to manage all this through a left-wing distributive system that's going to be run through the United Nations and the World Economic Forum in conjunction with the World Health Organization so that they can measure how much well-being it produces. Saito continues, it is noteworthy that Marx in this passage referred to the commonwealth as the form of post-capitalist abundance flowing from its springs. He used this expression only once, but its significant cannot, significance cannot be over, overestimated. Notice he still kind of not noticed that what Marx was saying is that it only works when everybody joins my crackpot cult. It's very important to notice that that's what Marx actually said there, but they never seem to notice that part. Saito says this expression needs to be contrasted with the opening sentence of his critique of political economy from 1859. Like capital, the critique of political economy starts with an analysis of the commodity where Marx wrote, quote, the bourgeois wealth at first sight presents itself as an immense inc- uh, accumulation of commodities, its unit being a single commodity. Pause for one second because that's the end of the quote. Did you notice that that's basically the same thing that's in capital? That's because these idiots just recycle the same crap over and over again. Back to Saito. Here, Marx designated the commodity as the bourgeois wealth that can be contrasted with the post-capitalist wealth, that is common that does not appear as a commodity commonwealth is democratically managed by the associated producers and produced according to abilities as well as distributed according to their needs there it is communist distributism commonwealth that's the wealth everybody has is democratically managed by the stakeholders by the associated producers that's the corporations that are in the program and produced according to their abilities so the mining companies do mining the travel companies do travel as well as distributed according to their needs, which are determined by the stakeholders. This is exactly, Saito says, how individual property is rehabilitated based on cooperative production, as discussed in the Civil War in France. So degrowth communism is left-wing communist distributism, which is the program of the World Economic Forum, United Nations, and World Health Organization. Although Marx did not believe, Saito says, that it would be possible to produce infinite amounts of wealth without any natural limit. He was convinced that once capitalism is overcome, there would be sufficient to feed everyone. Yeah, right. But uh, if not, I guess it could still work if we just had fewer people, right? Like Marcuse suggested, a reduction in the future world population. And Marcuse wrote that again, just to remind you, in 1964, which had a world population of 36 Billion, which is less than half of the world population now. So he said we would, of course, need a reduction in the future population from 3.6 billion at the time. Hmm. That's a lot of dead people, guys. Degrowth communism. It's going to degrow something. So Saito says, in other words, abundance is not a technological threshold, but a social relationship. See, they've switched out the definition. This insight. It, that's a nice word for bullshit, is, a f- is fundamental to the abundance of commonwealth to be reestablished beyond the artificial scarcity of bourgeois wealth. See, you will have abundance when you own nothing and be happy. That's literally what the argument is here. Kristen Ross, Saito tells us, calls this kind of abundance of commonwealth as communal luxury by demanding the, quote, end of the scarcity capitalism, sorry, the End of the scarcity that capitalism produces through waste, hoarding, and privatization. Similarly, Jason Hickel in 2019 names it radical abundance. It's not regular abundance, guys, it's radical abundance, it's communal luxury. Because this form of abundance inherent to commonwealth is radically different from the bourgeois form of material wealth that is inevitably based on ever increasing productivity and endless mass consumption of commodities. It's radical abundance because it's not abundance. In other words, Saito says, Communal luxury and radical abundance are not equivalent to the unlimited access to abundant private properties in a consumerist fashion. Otherwise, communist society would simply preserve the bourgeois form of private riches, contributing to the further degradation of the natural environment. Oh, see, it's not equivalent to unlimited access. Access will be limited. You won't be able to get what you want when you want it, you'll be able to get what you want when you deserve it according to the stakeholders who are operating a rational system of distributism. That's the model. Since the primitive accumulation created artificial scarcity, the negation of the negation reverses the order of the Lauderdale paradox, this is communist mystification magic, with the aim of recovering the radical abundance of common wealth, making it equally accessible to everyone at the cost of private riches. See, there'll be, it'll be equally accessible to everyone, just not very accessible overall. Like, Everyone, technically, as long as their social credit score is high enough and they're a true global citizen, can access a car, but only when there's a car available and there's really not that many. So sometimes, a couple times a year maybe. In other words... Saito tells us the abundance of commonwealth is about sharing and cooperating by distributing both wealth and burdens more equally and justly among members of society. See, we're going to move, as Klaus Schwab said, from a economy of caring or of production and consumption to a economy of caring and sharing. That's what it says here. The abundance of commonwealth is about sharing and cooperating by distributing, because it's distributism, both wealth and burdens more equally among members and justly, I should say, among members of society. Has anything socially just ever worked out? No, of course not. It means making people you don't like that you can scapegoat as the problem causers, make them do everything you don't want them to do. They become the new slave class, in other words. Saito says only by recognizing this point can the, quote, narrow horizon of bourgeois right be crossed in its entirety. So once again, in other words, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Everything you have will be delivered to you by drone in a distributist way as decided by the masters of the universe who run the Stakeholder Council, aka Soviet. What you are given access to on your new subscription model to everything, including underwear, will be communal luxury and radical abundance. It's different from real abundance by virtue of redefining what all the relevant terms mean. And everyone, it will be abundant because... Everyone will have access, even though there's not very much of it, because it's in in real terms scarce, but it's not artificially scarce under capitalist terms where you have to pay for it. Do you see? The whole thing's a pipe dream. But here's how how excited Saito gets about it. Based on this understanding, the famous declaration from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs can be interpreted in a non-productivist manner too. So you don't even have to, the from each and to each part doesn't even require production or consumption. Well, it seems to require consumption at some point, but I don't know. There's no production. It can be interpreted in a non-productivist manner. Marx envisioned, he said, a society in which natural and social differences of abilities and talents among individuals do not appear as social and economic inequality, but as individual uniqueness because they can be compensated and supplemented by by each other. So when, when Mao tried to put this into, into practice to experiment with it, by the way, he made factory workers work in the fields he made farmers work in the factories he made everybody be a soldier he made soldiers do other things he made everybody just mix up all their jobs because you know individual social differences abilities and talents cannot manifest as anything except individual uniqueness and what happened was mass calamity starvation and death so Saito is not quite as dumb as Mao here. He says, what one person cannot do well, something that will always remain despite all-round development, aka turning into a new Soviet man or new socialist man, what one person cannot do well can be done by others. And you can help others with what you are good at. See, under, but why? Why would you? Your talents aren't private property either. They're communal property. So the stakeholders will tell you what you're going to help people with because we're going to move to an economy of caring and sharing. They'll tell you who and what to care about and who and what to share with, including your time and talents. He says what everyone is not willing to do, uh uh-oh, the dirty jobs, what everyone is not willing to do, unpleasant and boring work, cannot be fully eradicated, can be shared by everyone more fairly. How is everyone going to do it more fairly? Well, the people who have avoided having to do it are going to have to do a lot more of it. And the people who have had to do it, who have the right consciousness, of course, and the right social credit score because they happen to have the right uh, global citizenship consciousness, a.k.a. they're communists, they don't have to do it. In other words, the party isn't going to do the work and everybody else is going to become the coolie. Whoops, I said it in Chinese. In this sense, communism does not impose conformity and uniformity upon everyone for the sake of equality, but it's about a, it's about social organization and institutionalization that helps to demo, sorry that aims to demolish the capitalist tie between differences in ability and skill and economic inequality, as well as the imposition of unpleasant work on a particular social group. It all sounds great on paper, but what it means is they're going to build slave classes out of the people that they think are not on their program and that have been unjustly. W- well-off in the past, according to their definitions of injustice. And they're going to force them to do all the nasty, dirty jobs that nobody wants to do. And meanwhile, so that's your that's your useless class and what they're going to have to do. That's the slave class. And if you're not on board, you're in the useless class. Meanwhile, the creative class, will supplement one another with all their talents according to what the stakeholders tell them they have to do. Because if they don't, they're going to become part of the useless class and that's their fate is to have to go do the dirty jobs nobody wants to do. In other words, this shit's going to be just as bad as everything the Soviets did and everything that Mao did and everything every other shithole communist country ever done if it's implemented. It's not just about degrowing the economy so that we can starve while we freeze to death in the dark. It's also going to create the same slavery Re education, gulag, labor camp, learn to love to work bullshit that every communist society's ever put forth because every communist society is fundamentally wrong, following the same fundamentally wrong asshole named Karl Marx about how stuff and people actually work. And people will never be remade, and it's all going to be mass death and starvation. It's a complete catastrophe. In other words, as Saito had it, this alternative interpretation of the critique of the Gotha program from the perspective of the of degrowth communism makes the meaning of the negation of the negation clear de-enclosing and expanding the commons for the sake of the many so no more private land no more private anything Marx used the term communal wealth in order to signify the future associated mode of production. In this case, one can simply translate it as cooperative, but its meaning gradually shifts to the into the archaic type of Mark commune, which is what we talked about before. There is no uh, the productive capacities are uh, highly regulated. They're owned by everybody, but they're highly regulated in a distributist model with probably stakeholders in charge of it. And thus, the term also signifies communal. It is the rehabilitation of communal wealth, the stakeholder capitalism, in a higher form, without going back to the isolated, small-scale production of pre-capitalist communes. I already told you how this works. Corporations that play ball are allowed to continue. They are the they are the big-scale producers, so that we can have goods and services that we need, but you aren't going to be allowed to actually own them. You're going to have to rent them on a subscription model because they're actually going to be communal wealth. You only get to have the benefit of the product. The makers retain the ownership of the product and everybody else, depending on their social credit score, has a, a claim on those objects that might supersede yours and you have to share and care about the right things all along. So Saito phrases that rather it presupposes socialized production under capitalism, but with social planning and regulation to hinder infinite economic growth and to decrease output in those branches that drive extravagant consumption. If that sounds a lot like China, except with major limitations because it's the West, you nailed it. Instead, Saito says, the expansion of communal wealth through basic services and public spending will enable people to satisfy their basic needs without constantly seeking after a higher level of income by working longer hours and being promoted. Wouldn't want to have to you know, work hard at your job. In contrast, it lessens the pressure for endless competition and expands the possibility of free choice outside the market. And like I said, other than the fact that China is not being asked to degrow in the process, it sounds exactly like CCP China right now. It's exactly like CCP China, except that everything is designed to shrink, including the populations that it's supposed to support. Does really, really, does any of this sound like it makes any sense? Like any of it would actually work? Of course not. This is idiotic. It's a crazy pipe dream. None of it makes sense. None of it takes into account the fundamental realities of human motivations. But of course it doesn't, because people will have to be remade to have different motivations. And that's literally baked into their program. It will only work, if it could ever work, after the remade man arrives, and that man is going to be called a global citizen. That's the man whose main want is to work for the commune and to share and to care about all the things he's told to share and care about. That is socialist man. In other words, cultists in the cult. Which, if you don't have those, you have two options. Everybody who's not one either has to be re educated or killed or turned into a slave where they're useless, except uh, they're, they're useless at criticizing it, but they do a lot of the hard, dirty, ugly jobs that nobody wants to do. That is, like always, for Marxists and for all Gnostic cults, this could only possibly work, and even then it wouldn't work, but it could only possibly work in theory if everybody joins the cult and has full and permanent religious fervor for the cult, always and forever. In other words, this is yet another atrocity beyond atrocity, mass murder in the making. Degrowth communism is still communism. This will not be, it's like the great leap forward, but it's a great leap backwards on purpose. It's going to be the death of billions with people in the equivalent of concentration camps and labor camps learning that work for the commune is their life's work. It is the same horseshit warmed over all over again. And no people, it's not gonna work this time. It doesn't matter how many words you redefine, doesn't matter how many people you mystify, doesn't matter how many people join the cult, it's never gonna work. Saito says, in this way, it is possible to revisit Marx's famous discussion in Volume 3 of Capital with regard to the distinction between the realms of freedom and necessity. See, freedom and necessity are dialectical. as One goes up, the other goes down. He says, the realm of natural, this is Marx in Capital Volume 3, 959. This realm of natural necessity expands with his development because his needs do too. But the productive forces to satisfy and expand uh, satisfy these expand at the same time. Sorry, I messed that all up. The productive forces to satisfy these needs expand at the same time. Freedom in this sphere can consist only in this: that socialized man, the associated producers, govern the human metabolism with nature in a rational way. There's your stakeholders bringing it under their collective control instead of being dominated by it as a blind power accomplishing it with the least expenditure of energy and in conditions most worthy and appropriate for their human nature but this is this always remains a realm of necessity stuff that people need the true realm of freedom the development of human powers as an end in itself begins that's cult shit right there begins beyond it though it can only flourish with this realm of necessity as its basis. The reduction of the working day is the basic prerequisite. So Saito says this has to be interpreted through the eco-socialist character of capital as he's imposing on it, uh, and then he arrives at his punchline, which sounds exactly like the ravings of Marcuse from 60 years ago, but apparently this is groundbreaking and new because Marxists don't like Marcuse, so of course he didn't think of it. So here's the punchline. From the perspective of radical abundance and degrowth communism, the expansion of the, quote, realm of freedom need not solely depend on an ever-increasing productive force. Rather, once the artificial scarcity of capitalism is over, people now free from the constant pressure to earn money thanks to the expanding commonwealth would have an attractive choice to work less without worrying about the degradation of their quality of life. Life. Now, pay attention because he said without the degradation of their quality of life. But he's explicitly going to say before long, and he already has, that that's what they actually would have to have. Um, but notice his goal: people would have an attractive choice to work less and still have a great life. It's an entitlement complex masquerading as a philosophy, as an economic system. Um, literally, it's a religion based on thinking you should be given shit not for not working. That's literally the whole goal. Jackson Hickel. He says, and that goes back to Marx, the prerequisite for all of his reduction in the working day. Jackson Hickel, Saito quotes, nails down this point. Quote Liberated from the pressures of artificial scarcity, the compulsion for people to compete for ever increasing productivity would wither away. We would not have to feed our time and energy into the juggernaut of ever increasing production, consumption, and ecological destruction. End quote. Saito again. Without the market competition and endless pressure for capital accumulation, freely associated labor and cooperative production could possibly reduce the working day to just three to six hours. Only then will people have sufficient time for non-consumerist activities such as leisure, exercise, study, and love. So there's your real abundance. You'll work less so you can have more leisure, exercise, study, and love. In other words, it is possible to reduce the realm of necessity not by increasing the productive forces but by rehabilitating communal luxury, shared property managed by a distributive stakeholder economy. Which allows people to live more stably without the pressure of being subject uh, subjugated to the wage labor labor system. So you won't be subjected subjugated by a wage labor system because you have universal basic income that's dependent entirely upon your uh, your social credit, which will be also determined on whether or not you do the work that the stakeholder comp- cabal tells you you have to do. That's how it works. So it's not wage labor slavery anymore. You see, you're doing the work for the commune that the stakeholders told you to, and you're not earning money, you're earning social credits. See, it's different. Such a scam. It's a scam straight into slavery using good-sounding words. It's so easy to decode, guys. Saito again. Degrowth communism produces less... (laughs) not only to increase free time, but also to simultaneously lessen the burden on the natural environment. Certainly, the shortening of the workday is a precondition for the expansion of the realm of freedom, but the fairer redistribution of income and resources—doesn't that sound great—can also shorten the working day without the increase of productive forces. In addition, by cutting down unnecessary production in branches such as advertisement, marketing, consulting, and finance— So do you work in one of those fields? Because you're on the freaking chopping block, guys. Advertisement, marketing, consulting, and finance. You are not going to exist. The stakeholders don't need you because they're going to tell people what they need to buy and how they need to... None of it's necessary. They're going to tell people how to manage their money. Nobody's going to have to manage their money. All those jobs are going... Are you in those fields? Because you are on the chopping block. You are a kulak. You are done for because the stakeholder people will tell you through your social credit system what you're supposed to buy, what you're supposed to have, how much you're supposed to have, when you're supposed to have it. And so you don't need advertising, marketing, consulting, or finance anymore. All that stuff's redundant. You can cut all of it. All of that is wasted labor. You don't need any of that. So that would be, as Saito says, it would be also possible to eliminate unnecessary labor. That's you if you work in advertising, marketing, consulting, and finance and reduce excessive production as well as consumption. Emancipated from the constant exposure to advertisement, planned obsolescence, and ceaseless market competition, there would emerge more room to autonomously self-limit production and consumption. Ah, there it is. It works when remade man understands that he needs to self-limit his production and consumption, necessitating a far worse standard of living, although he said we wouldn't have a worse standard of living, And, and, and in practice what this really would mean is starving and freezing to death in the dark. As Saito says, when Marx argued that humans can organize their metabolic interaction with the environment in a conscious manner, it means that they can consciously reflect upon their social needs and limit them if necessary. Your social credit system will make sure that you don't have to think too hard about how to do that. You don't have to know what your part is. You just have to do what you're told. And your social credit system is like a video game that will tell you exactly what you have to do and when you have to do it in order to do it. That will be managed by the United Nations World Economic Forum, uh, WHO. Uh, Stakeholder cabal. There you go. They will do the distributing and the distributist model of all of this stuff. This act of self limitation contributes. See, if you want a good score, you're going to have to limit yourself in terms of how much you want and how much you want to do. Don't travel so much. Really, don't travel at all. Like, try to eat less. You know, meat's a luxury. You don't really need that. You're going to have to cut down. There's some bugs you can eat. The act of self-limitation contributes to a conscious downscaling of the current realm of necessity. See, if you don't feel like you want stuff or need stuff like good food and travel and experiences and happiness and stuff and commodities, if you don't feel like you need all that stuff, if you self-limit yourself, then there's less realm of necessity. We need less. Well, as the realm of necessity shrinks, the realm of freedom increases. That's the hypothesis. So... Echoing Marcuse, Saito says, which is actually full of unnecessary things and activities from the perspective of well-being and sustainability. Oh, so a lot of the stuff that you love to do and love to eat and love to have and enjoy, those are actually unnecessary things and activities from the perspective of well-being and sustainability, which will be determined by the Soviet, the Stakeholder Council. See, Saito says they are only necessary for capital accumulation and economic growth and not for the all-round development of the individual. See, all that stuff that you like, travel and all this that you enjoy, foods that you like, that's not needed. That's only for capital accumulation. It's only so people could get rich. It's only for economic growth. What's really needed is stuff that develops you as an individual, which means studying socialism, guys. It means studying sustainability and inclusion. It means becoming a better global citizen. It means doing your part. Since capital drives us toward endless consumption, especially in the face of the, quote, total absence of identifiable self-limiting targets of productive pursuit admissible from the standpoint of capital's mode of social metabolic production, quoting from a guy named Masaros, self-limitation has a truly revolutionary potential. So if you think that sounds like Marcuse now, but it's all about them forcing you to self-limit, you know, you know, you will self-limit when your social credit system says you have to because the stakeholder said you have to. If you work in advertising or finance or marketing or whatever, just your job has gone. Just gone. You might want to complain about this because you're fucked, guys. Your whole departments are getting shut down. Just saying. But if you think this sounds like Herbert Marcuse right now, a one-dimensional man from remembering that podcast, Saito goes on to reproduce the insane thrust of Essay on Liberation, Next, Marcuse said all of this crap in 1969 in Essay on Liberation, that liberation really means liberation from the good life, sort of. He says it would require a biological foundation for socialism and a whole new sensibility that defines, as Klaus Schwab has it today, a new social contract. That new social contract is based on sustainability and inclusion or sustainability and well-being, as we just heard, which will determine whether or not your needs are real or false, which was Marcuse's main argument and point. And this shows quite nicely that the United Nations World Economic Forum World Health Organization Program of World Destruction and Domination is running this psychotic operating system right now that has its definition, degrowth. The real definition of degrowth is starving while you freeze to death in the dark. Sorry, Canadian girls, you're going to die Quoting from Saito, or here's where he says this, at the same time, as Kate Soper 2020 argues, even if the current way of life became fully sustainable thanks to unprecedented technological development, it would nonetheless not be a desirable world that could fully realize human potentialities in a good life. So even if we could have everything right now and it couldn't possibly harm the environment and we could live with it forever, that wouldn't be good because we couldn't fully realize human potentialities in a good life. Saito says, this is because of its constant pressure to engage in competitive work and consumption and its, te- its tendency to impoverish other opportunities for satisfying experiences in a more meaningful life outside of the market. Romantic bullshit. Romantic bullshit. So even if our life was per, even if the whole sustainability shtick is a lie, what they're saying is that wouldn't be any good because we wouldn't be communists. We wouldn't have the freedom of communism by reducing necessity. Post-capitalism, Saito tells us, needs to invent wholly different value standards and social behaviors. Oh, a new sensibility, like Marcuse said. And a new sense of sufficiency and well-being needs to replace the widespread aspiration to become upper-middle class. Well-being, richness, the well-being economy. There you go. Soper's call for alternative hedonism in a post-growth society, however, does not mean austerity and poverty because it simultaneously aims to enrich various non-commercial activities that are not necessarily reflected in the gross domestic product. See, people will have different wants, but that was the definition of Marcuse gave in 69 for a biological foundation for, system, for socialism. He said that their vital, he didn't mean biology literally. He said the level of their vital needs and wants would change. People will have different wants. They'll be remade to have different wants. And that means you'll be happier. You'll have nothing, but you'll be happy. Instead of wanting destructive, extravagant and wasteful products, sounds exactly like marcuse's false needs, being satisfied, people will desire healthier, more solidaristic and democratic ways of living. We can be so happy in our cult beliefs that are just growing and growing. Oh my God. In this way, degrowth communism expands the realm of freedom without depending on an increase in productivity and even by downscaling production. This is how the negation of the negation reconstructs the radical, this is how the snake eating its own tail, reconstructs the radical abundance of commonwealth. See, there's more snake after it eats its own tail because it ate. See, it eats itself and there's more afterwards because it grew because it ate, right? That's actually what they're saying. This is how the snake eating its own tail reconstructs the radical abundance of common wealth and increases the chances for free and sustainable human development without repeating the failures of really existing socialism in the 20th century. Brother Saito, listen, you're going to reproduce every fucking one of them worse, way worse. I already mapped it all out. It's real, real simple. I can't believe you're this fucking stupid. Brother Saito, you're going to repeat all of the failures of really existing socialism in the 20th century, so much worse. Billions are going to die. But see, you will own nothing and you will be happy because you'll be a fundamentally remade cultist. You'll really enjoy the fact that you have a widely expanded realm of freedom while not having to, really having the freedom to do much of anything other than exactly what you're told and the work that nobody really wants to do, but that has to get done And that the stakeholders told you you had to do so you could have a social credit system so that you can do anything. And you won't even have anything you like to show for it. It's like the same communist shit as ever. You'll like it this time though because you have different wants. Like wanting to live in a communist shithole because it's quote good for the planet. Or some perverted Gaia worshipping pagan horse shit that Greta would spout. You'll have so much commonwealth in your sunsets and your free time or something. I'm not going to go through section four in great detail. I'm going to touch on it. This actually, it doesn't just end the chapter. It ends the book. I'm going to give you a little bit of it. First couple sentences in the title really tell you a lot, and then I'll give you a little couple pieces and wrap this up. Starts off by saying Marx's idea of degrowth communism is founded upon the radical abundance of communal wealth. In other words, it's founded upon the fake abundance of complete bullshit, of being told what you can have, when you can have, under massively scarce conditions, operated by a distributist model run by a stakeholder council that's not accountable to anybody. It does not require unlimited growth because the abundance of common wealth can be multiplied by abolishing the artificial scarcity of the commodity and money, and by sharing social and natural wealth with others. So there's Klaus Schwab's thing. We're going to move from an economy of production and consumption to an economy of caring and sharing. He literally says we're going to be sharing social and natural wealth with others. Of course, the stakeholders will tell you how that's going to be done because their distributist model is where the rubber meets the road. It's not just social and natural natural wealth that you'll have more of by sharing it with others, though. Remember, you'll fundamentally have different wants. You'll want to work for it. You'll want to do all the jobs nobody wants to do. The title of the closing section of this chapter and thus of this demonic book is Common Labor as a Way of Repairing the Metabolic Rift. Common labor, common labor. So common wealth is wealth that everybody has. Common labor is labor that everybody does. So we can prevent the fake ecological disaster they use to leverage us into their scam by taking up common labor. Now, I'll tell you what it looks like in a second, but let me just riff on this for a second because common wealth is managed by the stakeholder distributist model. So the stakeholders tell you what you can have and when you can have it and how much of you can have according to whatever system, like their social credit system they set up to tell you what you can have and when you can have it. How do you think common labor works? It's exactly what I told you earlier. I didn't make any of this shit up. They will tell you what work needs to be done, who needs to do it, when you need to contribute in your social credit score or whatever system they implement to make it work will be dependent upon you doing exactly what they say. Now, this isn't wage labor because nobody's paying you shit to do the work. You just rise or fall in social standing in your social credit app, whether or not you've done it. And then that determines your access to commonwealth. Do you see? Do you see how this is all come coming together? So here's what this looks like in Saito's words. By reducing the production of non-essential goods that are produced simply for the sake of profit-making, it is possible to significantly reduce unnecessary labor. Marketing, advertisers, finance, you guys are axed. In other words, this reduction of the realm of necessity and corresponding expansion of the realm of freedom can occur by eliminating unnecessary labor and sharing the remaining work among everyone. How are you going to get people to do it? social credit score run by the stakeholders. So you're going to have a completely tyrannical system that operates a social credit system that determines in a distributist way, as they call it, what you're allowed to have and have access to, when and how much, and what work you have to do. And this is a complete feudalistic, tyrannical model. This is why Marxism doesn't describe a linear progression in history from primitive communism to advanced communism or global communism. It describes a boomerang where you go from Uh, primitive tribal communism to uh, slavery models, to feudalism, to capitalism, and then you start going backwards to socialist feudalism, to social slavery, and eventually you never actually get to the point, which is a global commune. It never actually works. You just end up in socialist slavery for everyone. But here's how you're supposed to understand it. You'll have less good stuff in your life, because you didn't really need it in the first place. But you'll be happy that you have less good stuff in your life because you'll be convinced that it was good for you to have less good stuff in your life. And you'll be forced to do your share of the work that nobody wants, more if you're more privileged currently. If you're historically marginalized, you might miss some because of inclusion. But you'll be forced to do the share of the work nobody wants to do for effectively no pay, just social credit points, so that you can have the social credit to have access to the distributed stuff that nobody actually owns. So nobody actually had to buy it. So nobody had to pay you to work because money is out the window, which is what Saito said. And this means because there's no money and you only have to work exactly how much they tell you have to work doing exactly what they tell you you have to do, whether you want to or not, whenever you want, just so you can participate in society and you have way less stuff you can get with the credits that you have. This means you'll have a lot more freedom which is the real meaning of wealth and abundance as Saito laid it out. See you have wealth and abundance because you have more time for like remaking yourself into a socialist because you don't have to work for someone else or even yourself. You don't have any responsibility to stuff uh, except what they tell you to do when they tell you to do it. Um, even if what they've built and what you're contributing to, Now was literally the means of a good life that you wanted to live in the first place. And what you, what they're building and what you're contributing to in the new system is literally your complete slavery and subjugation to a terrible tyrannical system with virtually no exit. But Saito's convinced. He wants to convince us of this tyrannical nonsense. Here's what he says is that uh, the, here, this is what this is really all about. He says it's about conscious regulation of the means of production and subsistence under socialism would realize a more rational metabolic exchange with nature. That's what the stakeholders are in charge of. Bill Gates knows a fuck ton more about the rational metabolic exchange with nature than you do. So he's going to order your life for you. Or as Marx had it, freedom in this sphere can consist only in this, that socialized man—not everybody—the associated producers govern—that's the stakeholder corporations—govern the human metabolism with nature in a rational way—that's a stakeholder council manages how the whole economy works—bringing it under their collective control instead of being dominated by it as a blind power accomplishing it with the least expenditure of energy and in conditions most worthy and appropriate for their human nature, which, of course, they know the science of right human relations better than everybody else, is called sustainability, inclusion, and well-being. And you have your well-being economy. So that's supposed to be how it all works. Give all your power and freedom and opportunity to degrowth communists like Klaus Schwab and the United Nations, the World uh, World Health Organization, and the CCP, and they'll lead us into a global, quote, rational metabolic exchange with nature that's a sustainable and inclusive future for all with an economy of well-being instead of money and GDP. And it'll be better because, because, well, because you remade yourself to believe in this death cult. And you are gaining value in life from your commitment to the cult as a religious nut job. And you're destroying civilization so you can get the, do- the dopamine hits along the way of being a good cultist. That's actually why. The story of degrowth communism is that we'll all work a lot less, which is false. But that's the sales pitch because Marxists hate work religiously. In fact, that was literally Marx's point. He said this all starts with a reduction in the hours of the working day. And throughout the book, Saito brings this point up about a dozen times. And because we'll work a lot less, even though we don't really have anything, we'll own nothing, we'll be happy because we'll be way more free, even though we live in shitholes and are starving to death and freezing in the dark. But we should take heart because as Saito says, the key here is the active participation of workers in deciding what... How and how much they produce. This democratic production is the direct antithesis of the despotic character of capitalist production. Associated producers more actively participate in the decision-making process without the imposition of the will of a few of the few, which turns out to be straight up Iron Law of Woke projection writ maximally, because the, the will of the few, the the will of the workers here is not really going to be in there at all because it's going to be determined by the stakeholders, which is, it turns out, the will of the very few, the most elite, the people that are in the best and highest graces of the party. Uh, that's okay because when you're remade and you're a cultist, you will come to love the party. You will come to love Big Brother and you will finally break down and cry and, because finally you too will realize you do actually love Big Brother. In fact, you always loved Big Brother. And that's why you'll have more freedom, because you're only doing the work that you're choosing to do, except when you're not, because you're choosing to do it because the social credit system said you have to. Except, of course, all those jobs that nobody wants, which have to be shared as communal labor, which means you, peasant, Communist slavery is hiding behind every corner of this story, but apparently it won't be despotic because if this time it'll be real communism where everybody has been remade into socialist man by being brainwashed through the social emotional learning processes and, more importantly, the social credit video game that they all play so that you'll want to do that work. As Marx had it, after labor has become not only a means to life, but life's prime want. We'll use social credit video game and... Uh, Social emotional learning to overcome, but that's what they used the gulags and labor camps for in the past. And if I had to make a guess, most of the people on the planet will actually find themselves in gulags and labor camps again to teach them that life's prime want really is doing labor for the commune to build common wealth that they can tap into uh, through their common labor. That's literally what labor camps and gulags were set up for in the first place. So here's how Saito closes. Last paragraph of the body of the book. It should be clear by now that socialism promotes a social transition to a degrowth economy. Let there be no no mistake then, right? Socialism promotes degrowth economy. Make that very clear in your mind. That's what you hear that word. You hear degrowth. You know what socialism, you know, it's communist. The regulation of capital's reckless attempt to valorize itself creates a greater chance of reducing the working day and thus the environmental impact. More autonomy for workers who are free from the market competition also gives them opportunities to reflect on the meaning of work and consumption. Be more communist. Social planning is indispensable to to banning excessive and dirty production. There's your stakeholder model, getting rid of the oil and the gas and the coal. Social planning is indispensable to banning excessive and dirty production and to staying within planetary boundaries while satisfying basic social needs. Sustainable and inclusive future. These transformations reinforce the possibility of slowing down and scaling down the economy in order to create a more sustainable and egalitarian economy. Although it was never recognized during the 20th century, Marx's idea of degrowth communism is more important than ever today because it increases the chance of human survival in the Anthropocene. Never recognized in the 20th century except by Herbert Marcuse, who literally wrote this shit in the 1960s and was like the biggest freaking thing, but the old school communists don't like him. So, you'll own nothing, you'll starve, you'll freeze to death in the dark, but you'll be happy because you have more time to reflect on the meaning of work and consumption while also knowing how to be good for the earth. And if you don't believe it, they'll just assert that if you don't get on board, everybody's gonna die, so you better. That's what you hear on the internet all the time. Either we can degrow on purpose, or we're gonna get degrown by destroying our capacities, which is just a straight-up lie. We barely use a fraction of the energy capacity available to us, which we could use to solve every one of these problems far out into the future. So ultimately, this was supposed to be a podcast about how the crazy Marxists redefined the keywords yet again to advance their agenda. In this case, degrowth communism is advanced by an infuriating Marxist inversion of the key terms scarcity, wealth, and abundance, which is obviously paper thin. They also redefined land. That's not the takeaway, the podcast, as it turned out, though, as I was working out what I wanted to say. The takeaway is that this story I just told is the whole scam. This is Klaus Schwab's great narrative for a better future, completely unmasked. I read that book. I've talked about that book here, too. There are so many global crises happening. That's the story. The great narrative for a better future that Klaus Schwab lays out. There's a paragraph near the end, is that there are so many the global poly crisis, the z poly crisis. There are so many crises happening all at once, especially climate change. So what we need for a better future is global cooperation and centralized control. That the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab. Will very kindly facilitate. It'll be manifested through ESG that points at the sustainable development goals of the United Nations Agenda 2030, facilitated through a steady state circular economy that focuses not on material wealth, but well-being as measured by the World Health Organization. There will be a distributist economy to make sure that this works. It will operate through a social credit system that's created and managed through the stakeholder Soviet that operates a fascist, corporate subsidiarity model that allows corporations that play full ball with them to continue to operate in the archaic form on a higher level. It will allow us to move away from an economy of production and consumption to one of caring and sharing. You will own nothing and you will be happy because you will be remade or you will be destroyed.